Omega Tau. Science and Engineering in your headphones. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to episode 300 of Omega Tau. This year seems to be full of birthdays. Uh, first, we had the 10-year anniversary. Now we have 300 episodes. Um, I guess the next uh, milestone will be, I don't know, whatever, 500 hours or 600. <laughs> no clue. Yeah, anyway, um, we're not going to celebrate this in any way, but uh, I thought it's worth mentioning that we have reached this kind of milestone of 300. And um, we have something that I have been trying to get recorded for a long time. Um, and I finally found somebody who was willing to talk to me about it, Lex Augustine. Um, it's about processors and specifically what processors, those things in your phone and computers that do the actual work, most of it at least, um, what makes them so fast? Because as you know, these things have accelerated their performance lots and the megahertzes, meaning the speed at which they are, you know, triggered, hasn't increased that much. The other stuff has to be going on. And so in this episode... We're discussing that. But before we get started with this, I have a few things to mention. First of all, there are two listener meetups next year. One is on January 14, that is a Monday, in Vienna. Um, I haven't yet decided where exactly we're going to meet. Uh, a couple of uh, Vienna and uh, surrounding area listeners have suggested various uh, venues, various locations, various uh, pubs. And I'm going to look at those uh, later today, probably. So if you're interested, then please um, send us an email, feedback at omegathowpodcast.net. If you want to join, it's going to be, I think, on 7 or 7.30 p.m. Uh, on Monday, um, January 14 in Vienna. The other listener meetup is in Karlsruhe, and that will be again on a Monday, if I'm correct, yes, um, January 28, two weeks later in Karlsruhe. We are going to meet at the uh, Karlsruhe, the local Chaos Computer Club uh, subsidiary or <laughs> uh, the entropia.de. Um, so if you go to entropia.de, you'll... Uh, find out where that location specifically is. It's rather uh, central in Karlsruhe. And again, if you want to join, please uh, send an email to feedback at omegataupodcast.net. I mean, in this case, I don't even have to send you email where we're going to meet because we already know, but it's still useful to know if somebody will show up. Otherwise, we're just going to cancel. <laughs> All right, so these were the two listener meetups. And then uh, another thing, um, this is more or less the Christmas episode. So first of all, I want to wish you Merry Christmas, also from Nora. We are going to publish another episode between the years, as they say. It's going to be on programming of quantum computers. So I, I don't yet, uh, uh, I'm not going to wish you a, um, a good 2019, because I'll do that in the next episode. But uh, I have uh, prepared a little Christmas present, if you will. Um, so over the years, I have uh, taken lots of nice pictures. Um, well, lots of not so nice pictures, but a few of them are actually quite nice uh, at the various Omega Tau uh, recording sites. 
Um, unfortunately, during the early days, I haven't done that, um, mostly because phones didn't have good cameras, I guess, and I maybe was too lazy. But over the last, whatever, five years, I, I did that quite consistently. And um, so I have prepared 52 of the best pictures at the highest resolution I could find. Um, so you can use them for screensavers or even, you know, print them on various uh, things with the various uh, services online to um, hang them on your wall. So if you go to the website, omegathubpodcast.net, and then click on specials, and then the first submenu, best of pictures, you'll find a new page. And it has uh, a little bit of text you don't have to read. Uh, and then uh, a download for a 500 megabyte zip file that contains those 52 images. I have HDR'd them a little bit. So I've tried to make them not just, you know, pictures of interesting places, but also make them visually a bit appealing. Um, I hope you like them. So that's a little bit of a Christmas present for you guys. Click on specials, best of pictures to download them. All right. I think that's all I had to say. Um, 300 episodes, two listener meetups, um, January 14, Vienna, January 28, Karlsruhe, and the Christmas present pictures. And we can now get started with our episode. And of course, Lex is going to introduce himself first. Okay. My name is uh, Lex Augustine. Uh, I'm a computer scientist and started working on this actually as a hobby in the 70s when I was still at high school uh, where I acquired my first computer, which was a Kim One. What? A Kim One. Kim One, okay. Uh, Kim One basically is a board about mm -hmm. this size, say size of an A4. Mm -hmm. uh, it had a 6502 processor on mm -hmm. it, uh, which is an 8-bit processor. We'll come to that, what that means later, yeah. I guess. Um and 1K of memory. And you had to program it with a small keyboard typing in hexadecimal numbers. All right, okay. And you had to store your data on a cassette recorder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's where I did my first programming on. And then I started to go to university, uh, got a master in electronical engineering with a specialization in uh, computer science, mm -hmm. as far as that existed by that time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which was around 1982 when I finished my studies. Uh, then I worked uh, for a few years, about a half year actually, at university, because as an army reviewer, I had to do some social service, mm -hmm. which was then uh, uh, working at the university. That sounds like a good deal. That was a good deal. <laughs> uh, there I did research on functional languages. Uh-huh, mm -hmm. And then moved to Philips Research. Actually, mm -hmm. I got an offer for a PhD position at the University of Twente by that time, but I met my wife who was living in the south. So I decided to move here. Big country. Big country. <laughs> <laughs> We're yeah. in the Netherlands right now, by the way. Yeah. Listeners. <laughs> so I moved to Eindhoven and uh, joined Philips Research. And there worked on parallel processing. Uh, there I especially worked on implementing a parallel object-oriented language mm -hmm. and worked on compiler generation and uh, compiler implementation. Mm -hmm. I've been doing that for a long time since, uh, working on compilers for VLIW and then moved in 2002 into a startup mm -hmm. from Philips. Uh, it was basically a spin-out from Philips. Yeah. Uh, we started there with 12 people. 
uh, working on designing processors and compilers for uh, media processors. Mm-hmm. So video, audio. Video, um, now audio is too low performance, so we were really targeting high performance, uh, low power. Mm-hmm. And we're not so much competing with DSPs, but more with uh, a hardwired solution, which we would then make mm-hmm. programmable. Oh, yeah. So we are at the high performance end of that domain. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up in Samsung TVs mm-hmm. as a video decoder. Uh, you can imagine that if you say have a flash movie or so and you want to play that on your TV, uh, you notice that quite frequently you have to update such a flash player on your PC. Mm-hmm. Right in a TV, what can uh, you do? Right, so if it's hardwired, so Samsung was basically could not tolerate a hardwired solution. They needed something programmable, and mm-hmm. that was is what we supplied to them. Mm-hmm. Other big customer was Intel for uh, imaging. Intel was basically moving into the mobile market and didn't have all components to move into, say, mobile phones or tablets. Mm-hmm. And one thing they were missing was camera. Mm-hmm. And we made a imaging pipeline which was fully fully programmable um, for them and that led to an acquisition by Intel in 2011 from then on I've been a principal engineer within Intel until I uh, in a reorg of Intel I got an uh, offer for early retirement Mm -hmm. in 2016 uh, when I quit working but then boring I got a bit bored <laughs> maybe, uh, and I got an offer for with some guys I knew who started the startup mm-hmm. on neuromorphic computing. Uh-huh. So Never I'm consulting consulting them at the moment, uh, and that is since the beginning of this year. Mm-hmm. And what is neuromorphic computing? The idea is that your the hardware of such a computer actually mimics the way the neurons operate in the brain. Oh, okay, I see. Mm-hmm. Right? And in that way, try to achieve, say, the efficiency of the brain, yep. which is very power efficient compared mm-hmm. to uh, to the silicon that we make uh, computers of, and apply that in artificial intelligence. All right. Mm-hmm. Basically, neural networks... Yeah, but the, but with a different way of implementing them. Yes, different yeah. way of computation within right. the network. Right. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So our goal today is to understand how computers and specifically the processors got as fast as we know them to be today. Um, and of course, there is everybody knows that the number of megahertzes that the ha- that the processors run at has increased. So that's one thing. But the other thing is also that processors do a lot of, if you will, magic in how they run the program. And we'll try to explore how these two fit together and how they became so fast. And I guess it's a good idea to start with, um, well, how fast they actually became. Everybody probably knows Moore's Law, which describes how much faster they got. So why don't we start there? Yeah, so maybe I should start one step before even that. Okay. I start with a paper by Richard Feynman. Okay. Um, from the late 50s, actually, where he, he was a very famous physicist. Yes. Funny and one, too. Funny one as well. Yeah, very nice character. Uh, he read some popu- wrote some popular books as yes. well, so I highly recommend those. Yes. Uh, uh, but one in very influential paper he wrote was that as a title, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom. Mm-hmm. And there he explained that from the principles of physics, it would be very well conceivable that you would make devices 
that could operate very fast because from the laws of physics, you could make very tiny components actually. Um, and the smaller they are, the faster they are. The smaller they are, the less power they consume. Mm -hmm. So from these basic laws of physics, already in the late 50s, he predicted basically the possibility of what we now call Moore's law. Mm -hmm. um, he also did some calculations how much data you could store at the pin of a needle, for instance. Mm -hmm. And it's li li yeah, is full, actually, from the laws of physics. So um, that paper actually showed what was possible. And then slowly we started to, uh, to follow that path. And in the 60s, uh, Gordon Moore, the, one of the co-founders of, uh, of Intel, formulated his now famous law um, that basically every two years or so, it was one and a half in, in the beginning, now it has slowed down a bit yeah. to two years. Every two years, we double what we can put on a piece of silicon and we also uh, double the speed of, uh, of what is running there. Mm -hmm. So uh, that law has been holding up for decades now and uh, its end has been predicted several times already but yep. we're still not there. But what, what did change um, are the mechanisms by which we obtain the speed up yep. because I would say as far as I remember between um, the mid 80s and maybe the early 2000s the the actual clock speed improved significantly whereas now that doesn't have it anymore Correct. now we use other mechanisms so we will explore yeah yeah so for, for <laughs> clock speed we ran out of steam i would yeah. say but uh, there were other ways to uh, to speed up processors and uh, i think that's a very interesting topic to uh, to cover later in yeah. this uh, discussion and when you say that there there the, the the number of uh, basically transistors doubled um that is relevant because of course all that happens in a processor depends on the number of transistors so that is a yeah. way of also speeding up without the megahertzes as one of the earliest way to make it faster yeah so let, let's go there then and let's go back to my first computer that uh, 6502 yeah. processor with on the kim one that roughly consisted of 3000 transistors mm -hmm. nowadays it's unimaginable that you would be able to make any processor with 3000 transistors mm -hmm. But by that time, engineers uh, made the effort and were able to do so. Um, they had to because there was no technology to make anything bigger than that yeah. by that time. Yeah, since then it doubled. And now roughly there are 3 billion transistors that were by 2011 or so. And since then it has gone on. Yeah. Uh, so it's now in the billions. Um, which is what you get if you double every uh, yep. every two years, right? It opens up enormous possibilities if you have such a huge number of transistors, which yep. you can do with them. Yeah. So I, yesterday evening, I, I happened to listen to a podcast called The Freak Show, and they mentioned something called the Monster 6502, which is basically a shoebox-sized, more or less discrete model of the 6502 with its 3,000 uh, worth, maybe it was also a bit bigger than a shoebox. And so that's something somebody built as a, as a, uh, for illustrative purposes. And the guy who talked about it in the other podcast said, if you would take one of the modern processors, he used an A8X from Apple, mobile phone processor, and built it with the same discrete 
building blocks. <laughs> it would be 286 square meters in size. Yeah. So that kind of illustrates the ratio at which this grew. Yep. So, but that shoebox used actually discrete tran transistors. Yeah. Okay. I think yep. he, he. I think he said that they also mentioned. Uh, what is it called? The seventy-four something. The NAND. Uh, yeah, NAND gate. Yeah, seventy-four zero zero. Yeah. So it's not just transistors, but a little bit integrated. Uh, okay. uh, and that's the end of what I know. Okay. But basically, discreetly. Yep. They talked about a different one. Uh, different. So they started the discussion with a different one, which actually had every single transistor as a separate thing you could <laughs> monitor. Uh, with basically, anyway, look, listen to Freak Show. Well, I'll put it in the show. Notes. Okay. Yep. Okay. So. How was this done? Why did what was the the key insight? What what drove this? I mean, or I should maybe ask a different question: Did the law drive the development, or did the development just happen and it turned out to fit the law? Was this prescriptive, yeah, or it, 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 I think it was both? Mm -hmm. um, there were several factors that actually interplayed. Mm -hmm. So. One important one is that the law is in some way self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Um, that um, the the industry was expecting actually the law to happen, and therefore designers were designing such that to to guarantee that the uh, the number of transistors would double yeah. every yeah. two year, right? Yeah. Because it was expected from them. Yes. Once the law had been formulated. Sure. But to do so is not so easy. Mm -hmm. And the way they were able to do that was because they were actually had the, uh, had the disposal of computers, mm -hmm. right? At the beginning, the 6502 was designed by hand mm -hmm. uh, on paper, basically. And all the transistors were drawn and also the layout of where the transistors were on the chip was done by hand. But that doesn't scale. Mm -hmm. So uh, people started to automate the design process of the chips. And for that, they needed computers. And, well, the previous generation of chips actually gave them the computers yeah. that would be able to do so. So I would say that we are only able to to design the next generation of, of computers. Uh, with the old one. <laughs> using the old one, because the complexity is so high that you really yeah. need the old one to be there. Yeah. So if you had to start all over, right, even with the knowledge of today, I'm not convinced that we could do it any faster. Assuming we didn't have today's computers. Yes, right. and we, we had the knowledge, yeah. but not the computers I themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We had to start from scratch. We so had to start by hand, and only then we could make the first computers, and yeah. from that the second generation, and yeah. so on and so forth. It's like the classical bootstrapping thing. It's the current thing. step gives you the yeah. next one. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. okay. And then there is economics. Um, that industry is a very large industry now on the planet. The, the cost of building a modern chip factory using the latest technology at the moment is about 10 and 20 billion euros. Mm -hmm. That can only be paid by a really big companies mm -hmm. uh, that make a lot of profit. And where do they make it from? From the previous generation of chips. Sure. Mm -hmm. Right. So there is a third level of bootstrapping. That's the economic level of bootstrapping. Mm -hmm. And actually, there are about three pl major players now in the world. It's Intel. It's Samsung, and there is, which you probably all know, and then there is TSMC, mm -hmm. which is a Taiwan-based chip company, and where basically anyone can, can have their chips being made. So that's the actual fabs, the, the, that's the, the companies fabs, that yes. build them, yep. um, not the, if you will, uh, companies that necessarily design them, because we all know that ARM, Apple, they do their own designs, but they yep. don't, their own, don't do their own fabbing yep. production. 
Indeed. Okay. That's where the FAPs are. And okay. that's where the, the, the price of these FAPs is between 10 and 20 yep, billion. Right. As I said. And half of that money goes to your neighbors in this direction. Yep. We're in Eindhoven and ASML is around the corner. So next, next to Eindhoven is Veldhoven. Yep. ASML, by the way, was also a spin-out from Philips. Oh, I didn't know that. Philips had its own chip division by then. Mm-hmm. And at some point they decided not to uh, continue that. So they made it independent. They kept a decent portion of the shares. And Philips earned a lot of money from the growth of the ASML. Okay. And listeners, you might remember that we had an episode with ASML years ago. I was working for them a little bit, or in any case, I was there. Uh, and we talked about their wafer scanners. Um, and uh, you should perhaps at some point, if you haven't listened, go back and listen. All right. Can I tell a little anecdote about ASML? Of course. Okay. So... <laughs> Um, say a decade ago, maybe even a bit more, um, there was quite some competition still in the market of these wafer steppers, which are basically the machines from which you make the chips. Yep. And there were two main competitors, Nikon and ASML by that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, nowadays it's only ASML. It basically has a monopoly in this uh, world of, okay. uh, of chip machines. But by that time, there were two strong competitors, and they needed to go to a new technology in order to be able to make these components on the chip smaller and smaller. And they use light, and they produce basically they project kind of the lights yep. on on yes. the chip at very high light, precision, <coughs> at extremely high precision. Um, but light has a certain wavelength, yeah. and at a certain moment, you want to make uh, components on the chip that are smaller than the wavelength of light. Yeah. And that's not so easy. Mm-hmm. So <coughs> Nikon was using water immersion, where you basically put a layer of water on top of a chip such that you exploit the fact that the speed of light is slower in water uh-huh. and thereby can make smaller uh, uh, smaller features on the chip. ASML was going for blue light, which has a shorter wavelength yeah. and therefore gives you also smaller components. Um, both were two, two years down the road in designing this new generation of chip machines. And then at some point, two directors of ASML sat together. And one of them told the other, uh, I don't believe in blue light anymore. Mm-hmm. And the other said, I totally agree. Let's change direction. So next day, they told the whole company, guys, we stop, we stop blue light. We go for water immersion. We are two years behind of Nik- Nikon. Uh, but let's do our best. And guess what? ASML hit the market before Nikon. <laughs> and then Nikon was wondering how is this possible. So they gave some company uh, uh, an order to make a report for this. And the uh, summary of the report was the coffee machine. What? The coffee machine. What <coughs> made it possible for ASML to do this is the coffee machine. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a placeholder for company culture. It's a placeholder for company culture. Uh, whereas in Japanese yeah. uh, company culture, you have a very hierarchical system yeah. with little feedback from below to the top. Right. Here in the Netherlands, it's very a very flat culture, I would say. Everybody talking to everybody and typically at the coffee machines. Yeah. The best ideas are yeah. basically are formed around the coffee machines yes. where two geek guys are basically discussing a problem. Yes. And because everybody in the company was told to go into another direction, everybody started to discuss how to do this. And a lot of ideas emerged uh, basically around the coffee machine. Mm-hmm. And that corporate culture allowed ASML to actually beat Nikon in this mm-hmm. process. Cool. Mm-hmm. That's in the official report of Nikon. 
Yes, and ASML got a copy of that somehow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that was the anecdote. All right, good. End of anecdote. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's talk a bit about some. I mean, we, the problem is if we if we cover all the basics of processors now, it will take us until tonight, and we'll probably end up in the early 80s. So that doesn't work. So we'll cover some basics briefly, and then when we talk about some of the advanced mechanisms to get things fast, we'll kind of get back to some of the basics. But we need to introduce some ideas. So yep. first of all, there is the, uh, the, there's, there's the computer as a bunch of discrete components, memory, hard drive, processor, and there is the processor with its own internal structure. Right. Yes. So we're talking about the processor. Yeah, but maybe we should briefly discuss the place of the processor in the yes. in a system that we call a computer. Exactly. Right? So the processor does all the computation and basically dictates what's happening in the system. And it needs support for that from other components in the system. So the main components are memory. Yep. It has to store its data somewhere. And that amount of memory is so big that, yeah, that it is needed that you put it on separate chips. Yep. So those are not part of the, of, the, of the processor itself. But memory typically is volatile. It means that if you turn off the power, the content goes away. And also it's relatively expensive. Because it has to be fast to keep up with the processor. It, yes, yes. So we have a secondary level of storage, which are hard drives. Nowadays, the distinction is blur blurring a bit, bit with, with uh, flash memory and flash drives and so on. So you see that hard drives now actually uh, become uh, solid state, also based on silicon. But for a long time, it was mechanical devices using uh, magnetic techniques to store a huge amount of data. Yeah. And in really large-scale storage, still is. Uh, for very large-scale storage, we still rely on that, yes. Also, that technology, by the way, has made a very big development uh, where the amount of data being stored also follows a kind of Moore's law. Right. But that's not a topic. Yeah. And then there is uh, things like interfaces, especially graphical interfaces uh, in a computer, uh, which basically puts your, uh, the image on the screen that you see, and there we have special processors called graphics processors that are able to make all the nice pictures you see, for instance, in games. And the reason why these are separate processors is because these are other kinds of computations. There is a lot of parallelization, parallel, parallelism going on, so that's why there is dedicated hardware, which, at least for now, we also kind of ignore. Yeah, indeed. But you can exploit the properties of, uh, of producing an image and making, yeah. therefore designing other types of processors. So yeah. the, the kind of work is different from that of the main processor. Yeah. There are also buses, right, that connect all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So they, you have to move data around between all these devices, yeah. and uh, there's some highways there on the, on the, in, the, in the computer that we call <laughs> buses. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So within the processor, if we look at this thing that does the computations, it does these computations basically by running programs. So how does that, how does a processor look internally and how does a program make the processor do something? Okay, let me try to explain that. So first of all, the processor has some abilities to do computation inside. So it can do addition, it can do multiplication, it can store data in memory, it can read data out of memory, and many, many other different operations. It can do all of that. So there is some logic there. In hardware. In hardware. It has there's logic there so that this hard, the hardware can do that. Yeah. But then since the hardware can do so many things, we need to tell it what to do. Right. So we give it an instruction. Mm -hmm. Do an addition. Mm -hmm. Do multiplication. Store data. 
right? These kind of instructions. A sequence of those instructions is called a program. Mm-hmm. And so every instruction, the processor is doing something else. Uh, it's basically getting data out of what we call registers, which is some local storage in the processor, very, very fast And storage. very, very few of them. And since they are so fast, there are few of them. So we read data out of registers, we do a computation, we store it back in registers, or we store it back in memory, or we read it from memory. Yeah. Or sometimes you need to take a decision. Mm-hmm. Am I going to do this computation or that computation? So there are also what we call branches, which basically means that we don't have just a sequence of instructions, but that sometimes you have an inst- a branch instruction which then jumps to another place in the program where you start continuing your execution of the program. Right, so the, the sequence of things that actually happen is always a linear sequence. Yep. But it could be kind of the left way or the right way, and yep. the program therefore has the branch. The program has the branch, uh, but the computer sees a sequence of instructions. Do yes. this, do that, do this, do that, yep. and so on. Exactly, yeah. Yep. Um, so that's the, the basic way the, uh, the, uh, the processor operates. Um, but then the question is how to, to make such a device, right? Um, so you, uh, what the processor does, it, it reads an instruction, which is also is in memory, by the way. Often a different kind of memory, sometimes but it, sometimes in the Especially in the past, it was a separate memory. Yeah. Nowadays, it's often in unified memory. Yeah. So it reads an instruction for memory. <coughs> it then has to understand the instruction, so it interprets the instruction, breaking it down to its components. Say, I have to read data from this register and from that register, so uh, those are part of the instruction which registers. So the, the the instruction might have arguments that say take the data from this register and that register, and the instruction itself might be add. So it yep. takes it from here and there and adds. Yeah. So you have to tell it where it comes from. You have yep. to tell what to do. You have to tell it where, where it, goes it goes to. Yeah. Yeah. So there are several steps actually in executing a single instruction. Mm-hmm. So a single program instruction ends up in several discrete activities yep. of the processor. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, so in the early processors, actually, you did the instruction by instruction. Mm-hmm. So one instruction, then that instruction had a couple of steps to be executed, and then when it was done, you go to the next instruction. Mm-hmm. Then when we got the ability to put more and more complexity on in a processor because of Moore's law, we started to make more complex processors, and we were able to actually to overlay instructions in time. So do things at the same time. At the same time. So when you basically are executing one instruction, you already start loading the next one, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like a pipeline in a factory mm-hmm. or like a conveyor belt in a factory, right? right? Uh, you do multiple things at the same time, but at different places in the processor. Mm-hmm. That's where the larger amount of, general case, hardware transistors comes in. There's just more places yeah. and you don't need... You don't need more transistors to perform a single addition. You need whatever the number is. So if you have more, then you can do other stuff at the same time. Yes, yes. So the complexity, I would say, that we have added to the processor is not so much in the computation, but it's more in the control of the whole thing. And the sequencing of the computations. Yes, and the sequencing Mm -hmm. of the computations. Yeah, Yeah, we will come to some more detail uh, later on. Of course, of course. Yeah, so the adder there that is doing the computation doesn't change the bit much, although it hasn't gone wider. As I said, my 6502 mm-hmm. was 8-bit. Eight right. eight bits. Then it went to 16-bit, then it went to 32-bit, and now we are about 64-bit. Right. So it's the number of length of data units that can be processed at the same time. Yeah. Yep. Indeed. And also the precision, therefore. So if it's 8-bit, you can encode numbers of 0 to 255. 
Uh, with 16 bits, you can over, go over 60,000. Yep. Uh, with 32 bits, you can also go to 4 billion. And with yep. 64 bits, it's, uh, it's, it's really huge. Yeah. Yep. And when you say precision, that is because you can take these uh, number of bits either to increase the range, as you just said, yep. or you can, if you will, move the decimal dot and therefore put stuff behind yep. the dot and therefore increase precision. Yeah, so for floating point numbers, yeah. so with a, with a decimal <laughs> dot in there, uh, actually, you can increase the precision of, yep. of the data and otherwise you can increase the size of the number. Yeah. Yep. So if we break down the processor, then we already talked about the registers. These, as we said, are local named discrete buckets where you can store stuff, right? Yep. Um, what other parts are there? So I guess there must be some kind of control of that, that yeah, so orchestrates that, okay, the whole thing. So there is, um, there's basically the, uh, the ALUs, so the arithmetic logic units. Those are, is the, are the components that do the computation. Mm -hmm. uh, so as I said, there's addition, there's multiplication, div uh, division, uh, but also shifting uh, and logical operations like AND and OR. Yeah. There's a whole all set of them, and together we call that the instruction set. That's basically the, all the different possible instructions that a processor can do. Right. Then there's registers that store the data and which has very fast access. If you want to go to memory, it takes more time. So there are special instructions to go to memory, so called load and store instructions. Mm -hmm. And there's an interface to memory. So that's also part of the, of the processor. But I'm still talking about what we call the data path. Mm -hmm. That's where uh, the data is actually flowing through. It's going from registers through the logic that does the computation back to registers or via memory. Right. So s some of the operations or instructions are also kind of dedicatedly specific, specific to a particular register. For At least I remember in some processors, for example, adding always takes the content from the register one and register two and puts it in register three always. So you all first have to put stuff in the right places, then just call add and then... Yeah, there are different types of, of uh, processors there. So yeah, we can touch on that now. So there are basically two main types there. There are mm -hmm. CISCs and RISC. Mm -hmm. So CISC is called complex instruction uh, set computer and RISC is reduced instruction set computer. The CISC instructions uh, set are, are complex in the sense that they are not really regular. For RISC instructions, they are regular. There is a part in the inst instruction that says this part is for the registers, this part is for the operation, Mm -hmm. And this part is for the output register, say. It, it's very neatly organized. Mm -hmm. uh, but it means that uh, instructions are not complex. You can do either an addition or a multiplication, say. In CISC instructions, sometimes you have, okay, we do a combination of a multiplication and an addition. Mm -hmm. And you can make all kinds of combinations of, uh, of instructions, which therefore gives you powerful instructions. And the way you, uh, you tell the processor what to do is by telling, do this instruction. In, often, because you have many instructions, but also you don't have a requirement for regularity there, you can uh, combine, say, registers and instruction and say, mm -hmm. this instruction always works on those registers. Mm -hmm. That is more, more uh, concise, right? So you get smaller instructions there. In the but they are more case. diverse in the CISC case. Yeah. Like the smaller instructions in the sense of encoding an instructions. They are ah, not as wide. Right. Yeah. right? Yeah. So they can do more powerful things and they are smaller. Yeah. In RISC, it's the uh, reverse. They do small, smaller steps. So they're less powerful, but they're more regular. 
mm-hmm. and the idea is if you do it that way then you can be faster because using simple instructions can be used in a processor to actually do sim- more simple uh, decoding of the instructions and therefore mm-hmm. run faster than on a CISC. It requires, of course, in the RISC case, uh, that the compiler does more work. Yeah, so the compiler is the program that actually generates the sequence of instructions yeah. from a programming language. From something that a human can read. Yes, that we can read. Yeah. Uh, and that's what programmers do, right? They write programs and then they give it to a compiler and the compiler turns it into yeah. the sequence of instructions. Yeah. So yeah, in both cases, you need a compiler, both for RISC and CISC. Yeah. And the compiler for RISC instructions will spit out more instructions, yeah. but more of the regular type. And for CISC, it, is, uh, it also spit out instructions, but they are less regular, yeah. but typically more powerful and much more diverse. Yeah. So I, I guess one of the advantages of a, of a CISC processor is that because the the uh, instructions can be as you say more complex they can do more there can be specific hardware specifically dedicated to this whereas if you do risk stuff you can't have special purpose hardware because there's no special purpose way of telling the processor what to do yeah so in that sense i would suspect that risk processors are also simpler they are simple. They yes. don't have special purpose processing yeah. way to deal with these special purpose abstract uh, yeah. instructions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because they're not so diverse, actually they are more simple. Yeah. And for a CISC inst- oper- uh, processor, you can actually, since you can make all kinds of different instructions and combinations, you can also make hardware for that. Right, exactly. Yeah. 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 So the, the, the Although the, I must say, we'll come to that probably later, we have a tendency then to uh, now in processors to internally behave more simple as a, as a risk, mm-hmm. uh, but <coughs> externally look, look like a CISC that comes with the advent of so-called superscalar processors. But we'll, okay. we'll come to that later. But there is also this microcode thing, right? Where yeah. microcode, if you will, if I understand correctly, it's like a processor internal software layer on top yeah. of the actual hardware. So, so is, that, is that blurring the distinction already so a little bit? Yeah, so I was... Uh, Telling, right? So if you in execute a single instruction, there's a couple of steps, mm-hmm. right? These steps have to be controlled in the processor. Mm-hmm. You read an instruction, even that's already a step, reading the instruction, yeah. and then you <laughs> break down the instruction, see what has to be done, mm-hmm. and then you do a couple of other steps. So to do that, you actually you have another program yeah. that tells the processor how to do one single instruction. Yeah. That's what we call microcode. Yeah. So actually in some processors that is there uh, just in the form of hardware, you can't change it. And other processors, it is there really as a kind of very deeply embedded software that could be changed. And sometimes it's being changed in order to fix a bug in the, mm-hmm. in the processor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, you, the, 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 the microcode represents a virtual progress as a processor with an instruction set against which you program. But then the physical processor is another one and the microcode kind of translates. Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting. Something I never really completely understand is, uh, I mean, in the end, you have to go from a huge set of NAND gates to, I don't know, a Java program. And there is the Java compiler, the Java VM. There is then the, the implementation of the VM. There is then maybe some optimization there. Then there is the microcode. Then there is the, um, you know, there's any number of layers. Yep. And I wonder if there is a, of course, there is tradition and experience, but if there is like a deterministic way of really deciding what to do where, I imagine that's a major concern in processor design. Like, yeah, but you know, the, that what actually 
tells you what is in which layer is the interface that you design of a layer. Sure. When you make a <coughs> layer, you say it's capable of doing this and that. It offers certain capabilities. Sure, sure, sure. And the next layer builds on top of that. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you have the ability to move functionality from one layer to the other. Right? But at some point, the, the interface, what the, what the layer is doing, has to be some way comprehensible. It has to be consistent. Mm. And that means that you not go and move strange things over these boundaries. Right. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, it would become a mess. Uh, yeah. As interfaces often are, but a different story. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So just to summarize, the, the, the way this basically works is you have a program, set of uh, instructions. The um, controller reads it. The microcode interprets what the uh, instruction means, drives the low-level logic unit, basically. Drives to do, the hardware. Drives the yeah. hardware yeah. to compute and, and, and to compare and decide. Yep. Um, and then all of this, the data is loaded and stored from memory. And all of this happens basically sequentially. Basically in, in the, sequentially. In the early days. Yeah. In the early days, it was really sequential. Right. As I said, you read an instruction and you do all its steps. Yeah. And then you do the next instruction. Yeah. Yeah. And we call that a von Neumann architecture, right? Yes. So John von Neumann was the guy that actually designed this architecture back in the 30s, I think. Mm -hmm. Um where you have uh, a memory storing uh, both a program and, and data and logic that actually does modification of the data. Yeah. Step by step by step. Step by step by step. Yep. And um, if we give this architecture a name, then there is probably another architecture which we're not going to discuss a lot because all modern and also historic processes, as far as I know, are fundamental architectures. Yep. But there is also the Harvard architecture. Can you say three sentences how they're different? Just so we kind of see the difference. I think it's just separating data and program, right? I actually don't know. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. Let's, I, think it's just, I think it's just that. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. okay, so let's talk about how you can improve the speed at which the processor does its stuff without increasing the megahertzes. And you already mentioned pipelining, so we should probably revisit yeah. that. Yeah, we, we can start with the width of the data, right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. With 8 bits, you can do less than with 16 bits or 32 yeah. bits or 64 bits. Mm -hmm. So that's the first step. You increase the width of the data. That's the easiest one. Mm -hmm. You need more transistors for that, mm -hmm. but that's about it, mm -hmm. right? There's a drawback, by the way, which is if you only want to do a computation with, let's say, 8 bits, but the smallest unit the processor works with is 64, then you might waste um, space as well. You might waste, might waste space, but if you're not talk, uh, still talking about how to increase performance, then we go, could go to SIMD straight away and say if I have 64 bits and I only need 8 bits, then I could do 8 of those within 1 of 64. So because 8 be times the, 8 is 64. It would be the job of the compiler to fill up a 64-bit String word yep. with eight things that the programmer thinks are separate things. Yep. Okay. And then you do an addition of two 64 bit numbers, right. but mm -hmm. in practice you're doing an addition on eight, yeah. eight bit numbers. Right. Right? Uh, but the compiler has to rearrange things so that you have actually eight of those eight bit numbers right. available at one point ah. in time so that you actually can do that addition. So at this point you can't do things naively sequentially anymore because no. you have to f collect these eight things that yeah. you... you have to reorganize everything and make sure that these okay. things happen at the same time so you can put them in a single instruction. Okay. 
All right. Uh, next step is actually to do pipelining. Yeah. So as we said, there is uh, instruction by instruction, but the instruction consists of several steps. And you could actually do a step of one instruction and say the second step of one instruction and then the first step of the next instruction at the same time. Yeah. And you can make this pipelining deeper and deeper and deeper. As deep as there are kind of steps that are part of an instruction. Yes. But then if you want to go beyond that, you could actually add more steps to an instruction. So you're not doing a full addition. You say doing a half an addition. Mm -hmm. And then you do two half additions. And you have an extra step. And that half addition actually is faster than a full addition. Mm -hmm. So you can crank up the clock speed uh, because you have to do less in every clock step. So the pipelining... Uh, exploits the ability that you can do things in parallel, but it also offers you the ability to make the processor faster. Because, because you're doing smaller, th can do smaller things, and you yeah. can do smaller things because it gives you two advantages. You run faster, which wouldn't help if you would just be doing smaller things, because two half editions would take me more time than one full edition. But if you can actually parallelize them by doing yeah. the first half of an uh, edition in one instruction, And the second half of the addition of the previous instruction at the same time is still faster. You can only do this if your instruction number two doesn't depend on instruction on the result of instruction number one. Yes, yes, yes. So pipelining has limitations there. Sometimes there's one instruction has to wait for another. And we call this a pipeline bubble, mm -hmm. which basically means that you have to stall the pipeline. Yep. You have to stop computation and wait until a result becomes available. And then you can go on again. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is unfortunate. You want to avoid that as much as possible. And therefore, a compiler also helps. It tries to arrange the instructions in such an order that uh, the, this pipeline bubble is avoided as much as possible. Mm -hmm. It's not always possible. So the hardware still has to be prepared for this <laughs> and has to detect it and has to do the stalling and it has to do the restarting. So this all increases the complexity of the processor the controller, to, a, yeah. to, a, of the, to the controller to a considerable extent. Mm -hmm. uh, because the processor designer has to foresee all possible conflicts in a processor mm -hmm. because all of these conflicts could lead to a bubble and it has to detect the conflicts and it has to control the pipeline and it has to stall it and restart it and so this is only possible because of Moore's law because we have more and more transistors we can things make things more and more complex yeah, yeah. and we have been doing that for instance for this purpose it's what you said before that the complexity goes more into the controller and yes. not so much into the ALU yes yes right mm -hmm. yeah. so if you have two add operations without any load and store between them then what you rely on I guess is that the compiler creates a program where these two adds don't look at the same register because otherwise it wouldn't make much what i'm trying to get at is how does the processor the controller know that things don't conflict and that there will not be a bubble how does he he how does the controller uh, detect the, the the conflicts that then lead to stalling the pipeline yeah. so if i have say uh two additions on top of each other right and the first yeah. uh writes into a register say register a And the second one was to use the result of register A. Then you can't start the second one yeah. before you have finished the first one. So that one, is easy right? because they have the A as target and A as yes. source. Yes. Uh, and these registers are known at compile time. So, so a compiler can make sure that it doesn't do these, this sequence. It basically will postpone the execution of the second instruction and put something else in between. 
that's not dependent on this register A, mm-hmm. if it is available. And in that way, uh, make sure that uh, actually um, you have sufficient distance between the instructions such that you're not dependent anymore. Yeah. So that's what I meant when I when I talked when I mentioned this before. So how do you as a so let's say Intel uh, publishes a new processor. It has a well-defined interface as part of its like microcode. Basically, as we learned, it's the interface to the microcode that you compile to, basically. And they also design the compiler, a reference compiler, let's just say. Yep. And at least in the early days, it was the case that Intel had a compiler for their processors. Um, now, you could either say the compiler is relatively naive and just creates a relative direct transformation of the source code to uh, machine code and then it is the microcode that detects oops there is you know two additions on top of each other and the microcode does the reordering yep. so you could also let the compiler do that yeah you can either is a valid option and how do you decide there is one important difference um, as I said at compile time you know which registers you are using so that information is available at compile time. If you go to memory, for instance, you don't know necessarily. Mm-hmm. There is some address of some data in memory that you mm-hmm. have to load. And you can have a dependency as you have between registers. You can have it also in memory. Right. At compile time, you sometimes you can know, and the compiler does deep analysis to actually find that out, but in principle, you cannot know everything. Yes. In hardware, the address has been computed. You know yeah. it. It's a value. It's you a value. Know it. It's available. Yeah. It's in some registers. Yeah. Uh, in some register. You can inspect it. Yeah. And then you have, say, a store operation and a load operation. And the compiler thinks, maybe the load comes from the same address at the store. I have to postpone it. Yeah. And the hardware sees these addresses are different. Yeah. I don't need to postpone it. I put them in parallel. Right. So there's more information available in the processor at runtime yeah. than there is available to the compiler at compile time. Mm-hmm. Um. That's one thing, one reason to move, uh, a tendency to move to hardware. Another tendency is that uh, if the compiler finds all these things out, and it has to tell the hardware somehow. Mm -hmm. So you get more complex instructions. Instructions, yes. And and more complex instructions means more memory needed for the instructions, Mm -hmm. but also more power to actually move that data around. Mm -hmm. So there's another, therefore, driving force there to move into that direction. And there is a third one. Maybe the most important one, especially for a company like Intel. Intel actually has made its first processor in the 70s, the 8080, mm-hmm. it was called. Yeah. And since then, there are successive new processors uh, with a more and more complex instruction set. Mm-hmm. However, the instruction set of the 8080 is still part of the instruction set of all modern Intel processors Backward today. compatible till the Stone Age. Yeah, backward compatible till the Stone Age, which means that... You don't have the ability in the compiler to tell this all information to the processor. The instruction set doesn't allow you. You can't change that so much. You can add new things, Mm -hmm. but you can never change old things. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So then you have to do it in hardware. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's this, the interface has to be the same, but we then do something in the implementation that's more clever. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. and if you go to an extreme here, um, and that's what happens nowadays, is you go to superscalar processors. Where basically, in hardware, you unravel (laughs) all the dependencies between the instructions. So you don't necessarily do them anymore in sequence, not even pipelined. You just break it down to all basic operations there are and their dependencies. 
Mm-hmm. And based on those dependencies, mm-hmm. you decide, okay, let's do an addition here. Let's move a multiplication there. Let's try to make it as parallel as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a full backward analysis of the, right. the, the instructions. All the dependencies hidden through these registers and through memory yeah. in these instructions are basically recomputed. Put in a big graph. Put in a big graph with only dependencies, yep. and based on those dependencies, actually, you use the hardware that does the computation. So that's what you call, oh, not you, that's what's called superscalar. That's what's called superscalar, yeah. Right? Um, I imagine there is also a trade off because now the analysis and preparation of this graph takes time as well and requires yep. control logic. So yep. I guess if you do that too much, then the overhead of doing that is in total slower than if you would just, in quotes, naively run the program yeah. and so accept that, a couple of stalls. Yeah, so there that's why there always has been the, um, or not always, but at some point the risk processors came up and said, this control is going to be too complex, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We need to make things more simple. Mm-hmm. That's why we call it risk, reduced instruction yep. set computer. A risk with a C at the end. With a C, yeah. Um, and so that's basically two philosophies mm-hmm. of how to make a mm-hmm, processor. Mm-hmm. And Intel has is forced to be in the CISC domain because of the backward compatibility requirement they have. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas other companies are have, have less of such a constraint. The ARMs that drive modern phones are risks. Those are risks, yeah. yes, yes. Although there, there is nowadays a backward compatibility requirement. Yeah. But in, in, in philosophy, there are still risks. And what they do is they extend the instruction set by adding more and more different yeah. instructions. Yeah. Yeah, and keeping yeah. the rest. Okay. Wonder if I should ask one more thing about the superscalar execution. So basically, what it does is, if you have an addition of two, uh, let's say variables, which are then at the low level actually registers, but these are identified places where data is, right? Yeah. So then basically, you have to. I mean, when you say the whole computation is unraveled into this graph, the, yeah. I mean, whole is a big word. So then there yeah, needs yeah, to be yeah. some scope, right? There is some scope, yeah. That scope is determined, of course, by the amount of resources you want to spend in storing this graph, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but what's more important is, at some point, this program is doing jumps. Yes. Right? So you have a sequence <laughs> of instructions that you analyze, that you unravel, that you basically are executing, and then you're going to jump somewhere else. Am I going to jo- do jump left or right? Yeah. I don't know yet. Yeah. So that means at that point, if you go left, you have to start building a new graph for the left part. Yeah. If you jump right, you have to start building a new yeah. graph for so the right part. you can't start building the graph or you have until to do Until you both. know where to jump. You do both. Yeah. yeah. Either you do both or you try to predict where you go. Right. <laughs> right? And then you start, okay, I guess I'm going to go left. Okay, let's start with the left part already. Mm-hmm. And m- most of the time, if your prediction is good, then actually you... Uh, uh, you are lucky and you can com- continue. If not, you have to stop. You have to trace back, uh, mm-hmm. undo what you have been doing and start for the right part. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. misprediction is expensive. Mm-hmm. You just uh, implicitly mentioned the idea of branch predi- prediction. Yes. How yeah. do you predict? I mean, yeah, so there's different. if it's 50-50, yeah, yeah, it's useless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's useless, yes, yes, yes. Well, you can do two things. Um, uh, you can try to do it statically. And say, if I jump backwards, then I probably are in a loop. Oh, oh in the program. In the program. To yes. a, yeah, okay. yeah, I, I have I'm, I'm computing, and at some point I decide, I want to go back. Yeah. If you go back, then basically you're redoing something you already yeah. did. Yeah. So that's a loop. And typically yeah. loops are executed many, many times. Yes. So a backward jump is more likely than just going on. Yeah. Uh, so then you say, okay, I 
predict I'm going to take the loop back. Between left and right, often you have uh, one part is basically continuing in the, in the instruction sequence and another is jumping somewhere else. Kind of an exceptional so, case. Yeah, so it's either I go on or I jump somewhere else. And yeah. then you say, if I don't know anything, I assume that going straight on is the most likely thing, so I'm going to predict that. Mm -hmm. So that helps to some extent, but it's not very precise. So that's what you'd call probably static branch prediction yes. because it looks at the structure of programs only and only, says... Yeah. You know, it's like more likely that the weather tomorrow is going to be like it is today, so I'll just assume yep. and continue. Indeed. Yeah, that's the, the philosophy. Yeah. Alternatively, you can you base on statistics of executing the program. Mm -hmm. You can start counting, right? For every jump, you count, uh, did it go left or did it go right? So that, but, but that assumes that you, that the part of the program that contains the branch is executed more than once because otherwise yes. you can't do the statistics. Yeah, in the beginning you don't know. Yeah. But at some point you actually you start to gather some statistics yeah. and then you find out, okay, mostly I'm going left. Yeah. So next time I'm here, I will go left as well. Yeah. I assume that I will assume, go left. Yes. Yeah. 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 And again, a trade-off because you have to store somewhere all the statistics yeah, yeah, you collect. Indeed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we have more and more and more transistors so we can do these kind of things, right? Over yes. time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there you see actually the What Moore's law give us, right? It gives us not just more speed. Mm -hmm. It also gives us more opportunities to make things more and more complex and yeah. therefore do all these tricks. Yeah. This um, notion of um, collecting statistics of the executing program is, by the way, not just used in processors. It's also used in VMs, virtual machines, which are kind of virtual processors. And um, I know that um, the... There's this terminology of the Java hotspot VM that it has to warm up. And what this yep. means is it has to have enough of these statistical data to make meaningful predictions. Yeah. yeah, I'm no expert in virtual machines, but I've seen some of them. There's also pipelining in virtual machines, yeah, yeah. for instance. So all of these issues you have in physical processors, yeah. you also have in virtual processors. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. There is the two-bit prediction scheme. Yeah. I found that out when I googled some of this. Okay. What's that? It's basically a four, uh, two bit counter. You can count to four. Mm -hmm. So you have the numbers zero, one, two, and three, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, zero means a branch is strongly not taken. So you either ah. take a branch or you don't take it. Mm -hmm. If I uh, then take it once, then apparently the strongly not taken is not really true. Yeah. So then you increase from zero to one, and you, then it's weakly not taken. Mm -hmm. And if I jump another time, then you have. Twice I have not taken the branch, then it's going to be, go to weakly taken. And yet another time I go to strongly taken. Uh, so the value 0, 1, 2, 3 tells me how likely it is that the branch will be taken. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now if I say I'm strongly taken, but next time I don't take it, I don't go immediately back to strongly not taken. Yeah, this, I go one yeah. step back and go to weakly not taken. Yeah. So because you're not jumping between basically one Uh, assumption and the next there are several versions in between yeah. you have more precision in saying whether the branch will be taken or not right and the fact that it's two bit is just a particularly probably experience based a compromise between the amount of memory you need to store and the precision of the prediction yes, correct yeah. okay and, and that one seems to have been especially yeah yeah this is relatively cheap and still relatively precise so right. that's why we have gone to two bit uh, mm -hmm. branch predictors okay yeah. and so then for every branch in the program which the controller encounters it has to if you will create an instance of that data structure and somehow associate it with that particular branch yep. so the, the 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 
I don't like the word metadata here, but the, the data the processor maintains to control the execution of the program is also something that dynamically has to grow and shrink. Yep. So there must be some kind of manage, memory manager in the processor somehow to do that. Yeah, yeah you have to control this, uh, yeah. this branch prediction table. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So this, and but I guess the nice thing is if there's not enough room, for instance, you can throw out some, some sure. all the data that's no longer being used recently. Yeah. And then when it comes back into scope, then you have to start again. And yeah. the only thing you lose is performance. Yeah. It's never wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So another thing, we, we talked about the, the, the computer architecture before where we said uh, the processor doesn't contain the memory. Uh, memory is big, blah, blah, blah. It's separate. We already found out that because it has a few identifiable registers, this statement isn't quite true because there are a few well-defined boxes on the processor to put stuff. There is also cache on the processor, yes. which is more memory. Yeah, more generally, we talk about the memory hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's uh, different levels of, of memory with different speed of access mm -hmm. and also yeah. different power consumption. So internally, you have the registers within the in the processor, which are the fastest and also the cheapest in, in power when you access them. But there are only a few of them because they're most expensive. How many registers, roughly, does a processor have? A few dozen, typically. Okay. Although nowadays we go maybe to a few hundred uh, already. even already. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right? It's less than a thousand, definitely, at this okay. point in time. Yeah, yeah. And if you go to the other extreme, into external memory, not talking about hard disks even, we're talking about gigabytes yeah, yeah, sure. of, of external memory, right? But, but if you have, let's say, a few hundred processors, they can't have speed. Specific. I remember back at school when we were like doing assembly programming. There was always the EAX process. Uh, so there was a, a dedicated, specifically named uh, 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 register that played a particular role regarding the um, the the instructions. And but you can't have hundreds of specific names. So no, there must no, be no. general purpose True. somehow. But then that we mentioned say superscalar, right? Yes. So in your instructions, you have a few registers available because you can't encode that many registers in ah, your because instructions then the because they would get would way longer. too wide. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. But in the superscalar, we uh, said that you break down the stream of instructions into a dependency of all the operations ah, mm -hmm. to hold the data in that graph of dependencies. You need many, many registers. So that is register And that's level. where they are. Ah, yeah. So okay. they are physically within the processor, Okay. but not necessarily visible from the program. So in other words, there are some registers which are, if you will, public. So the program can talk to them specifically, for example, to put data there and then add stuff. And then there are other registers which are kind of private to the processor for its metadata, which you never expose. Yes. Yeah. Aha. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um so that's one level, right? Yep. Those are the deepest. They're inside the processor. On yep. the other extreme, there is the external memory, yep. typically DDR, uh, dynamic uh, random access memory. Yep. And that comes in huge quantities, right? Yep. As I said, in the order of gigabytes yep. nowadays. Yep. Um, that's outside of the processor. So you have to get outside of the chip. You have to go onto the printed circuit board of your computer you have to go from there onto a bus you have to go from the which are basically wires on that printed circuit board you have to go onto the chip of the uh, of the memory and then access the memory and then your data comes back through uh, through a similar path yeah just very roughly how many processor steps long does this take now to go to externally from a processor into memory is hundreds of cycles okay 
So it's a really big It's overhead. a really, yeah. If you really are dependent on the data, say you have to wait for 200 cycles yeah. for before the data comes back. Yeah. You can do nothing if you really yeah, depend on it. That's crucial that you do that ahead of time. Yeah, indeed. So somehow we need to be able to speed this up. Yeah. So what we have done, actually, we have come up with some uh, intermediate data that mirrors the data in memory. Yeah. And we call that a cache. Yeah. And the cache is in the processor itself, yeah. in the same chip, I have to say. So that is accessible fast, not as fast as registers, yeah. but way faster than uh, than external memory. It's typically in the order of a few cycles right. uh, that you so can access cache One memory. or two orders of magnitude faster. Yes, two orders of magnitude yeah. nowadays, yes, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. But then you mirror that data, right? So that means that uh, if a processor reads from memory, the cache is still empty the first time. Yep. And you read a, not just if you want a single word from memory, you're not reading that single word, you're reading a full what's called a cache line. That's mm-hmm. multiple words. So, so the, the 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 granularity of memory duplication in the cache is a larger granularity than the thing the program says they yep. want to modify. Yep. And so that's in the cache then, and it stays there for a while. So if you need it another time, and typically you access data multiple times. Yeah. If you need it another time, you don't need to go to external memory. Yeah. Yeah. Keep it in the cache. Likewise, when you write to memory, you don't necessarily write through to DDR. You just write in the cache. But you have to remember that it's not yet in DDR. Yeah. So there's cache control there. Yeah. And um, if you're going to read it, you know it's in the cache. You can read it from the cache. You don't have to go through DDR because yep. you've put it yourself in the cache. So, But the cache is relatively small. Yeah. It's on the order of megabytes, not in gigabytes. So that means that uh, at some point, your cache is full. And you have to throw out cache lines in order to read the new data. So there's a controller there and some some techniques and policies and it's some statistics again. Statistics and it's a basically a topic in itself yeah. how to do cache design and cache management. Yeah. Few questions here. So the the fact that you deal with these cache lines instead of separate words basically uh, assumes that there is some locality or adjacency to data. Like if you use yeah. if you use this piece of data, then very likely you know if you iterate through an array, the one next to it is also needed. So we'll get that already. Yeah. So certain data structures they typically uh, like arrays or, or strings stru- structures or whatever. Yeah. yeah, they typically have locality of reference. If yeah. I need one, I need the next. Yeah. That's one reason to do it. The other reason is that DDR has been actually designed to be more faster if you do burst access. Mm-hmm. What is burst access? So typically you, what you can do in principle is you can re- read randomly one uh, word of data from memory and then somewhere tot- some, something else uh, somewhere else. That takes time mm-hmm. because you have to tell the uh, the <coughs> memory the address and then wait for the memory to come back with the data. There's a whole controller going There's on there There's a whole control well. there and it takes yeah. time. You can also say, I want data from here starting and I want 128 words of data from this point on. And then you get a whole stream of data back yeah. and yeah. one go. Yeah. So that's far more efficient to actually in a burst fashion, as it is called, to access the memory yeah. than to do it randomly. Well, but it has been designed that way, I guess, because yeah. you also assume the locality. Yeah. So the locality is kind of the driver. Yeah, it's but two ways, right? It's much easier to design a burst yeah. efficient uh, access than to design randomly yeah. efficient access. But right. yes, these are these have been co-designed. Yeah. But also the compiler has a responsibility here because it can actually by analysis and analyzing mm-hmm. the program, it can increase right. the uh, locality. So you you encode the data when you kind of put it into the program in a way where it is like uh, more local. 
Yes, and it is especially done in programs operating on arrays and matrices yeah. of data. Yes. And then the compiler will analyze the way the access pattern of this data structure is, yes. and it will reorganize it yes. such that it exploits cache locality. We actually once did a little experiment there when we played with domain-specific languages for parallel high-performance computing kind of okay. stuff. And we wrote a little, if you will, compiler-ish thing, which either encoded the data as an array of structs or as a struct as a two arrays of separate yep. elements. And uh, depending on what you did with it, the performance was quite different. And that was specifically, I was told, because of these cache, yep. cache, mis cache misses you create if you encode it the wrong way for what you do. Yep. And the difference can be considerable. Yes, absolutely. Yep. What happens if you cache data and then some other entity in your computer modifies the uh -huh. data in memory? Like if the... A peripheral directly stores stuff in memory, and now your cache and the data is outdated. Yeah. So there are several solutions here. Um, in PC architecture, or in Intel architecture, I should say, uh, the uh, GPU, so the graphics processor, logically shares the cache with the CPU. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that means that if you're writing data into a cache line as a GPU, the CPU will see the same cache line. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's control to make sure that they don't write at the same time. Yeah. But that's uh, that's um, the possibility there. That, Other that devices don't have that advantage. Yes. Well, so this works essentially for built-in graphics units, yes. right? Not for those yes. separate physical thingies you put Correct. in your PC. Yeah. That's on-chip graphics. On-chip graphics, yes, yeah. that's the word. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so uh, that's that's the easy part. Right, other processors. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction that we were doing uh, imaging processors for mm -hmm. uh, for Intel. Uh, don't they don't have that privilege? Mm -hmm. So when we are actually writing into memory uh, as a media processor, say you're basically maybe writing data that is also used by the main processor. Yep. Then there are special instructions to ah. invalidate the cache line. Okay. So you have the obligation to tell the cache, <laughs> "Hey, I did." change this data, yeah. the data you have in your cache is no longer valid. And so likewise, if the processor is going to change anything and it ends up in the cache and not yet in memory, right? Because, okay, that's something I didn't mention yet, I think. So if the cache is full, you have to put out, throw out something, you have to write it to memory yeah. if you change if it. You ch only if you change only it. Only if you change it. Yeah, so there so is a, a change bit, flag. Yeah. there's a bit for every, for every cache line, it's called yeah. the dirty bit, yeah. that tells you whether anything in that cache line was changed. And yeah. if so, if you're going to throw it out, you have to write it to memory. Yeah. Um, also, uh, certain cache lines can be programmed as write-through. So the data mm -hmm. never ends up in ah, memory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It never ends up in the cache. Yeah. You write immediately to memory. Yeah. And for instance, you insert a synchronization between processor and peripherals, you may need to do this. But that is expensive. Yes. Because it may, as we said, it may increase stalling the processor for yeah. maybe hundred of because more cycles. if you cache, the processor continues after these very few cycles and then it's kind of an asynchronous process writes it back. Whereas if you write through, then the process has, process has to synchronously wait yep. until you've ended up every the hundreds of milliseconds, yep. or hundreds of steps in yep. the memory. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. But synchronization here is explicit. Yeah. So you have to tell each other that you are doing these kind of things. So that makes sense. Still a bit hung up on the each other. So that means everybody needs to know everybody or is there a central place where everybody says what they just changed because the the, the cache is in the processor so the, how do, how does who does the graphics card tell that they changed that data do, does it talk to the processor 
It has to talk to the processor, yes. So there's yes, a yes. communication between these. Yeah, that's through these. the operating system. Oh, yeah, okay. So, that's, so, okay. That's, um, so the processor has special instructions there yeah. to actually invalidate cache lines. So you tell the processor to invalidate the cache. Yeah. But um, that is executed from a special program which is controlling the whole system in a computer at the ah, computer level. Right, which because is called it's the operating not in system. your program, obviously. It's not yeah, in yeah. the program. Yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, the computer is running many, many programs yeah, 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 at the yeah, same yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. They're running a web browser and yeah, yeah. email and maybe you can play that's a game. Hmm? That's what people do today. That's what people browser do today. Browser and email, that's yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> a game, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Right? <laughs> yeah, so that's what they do. And uh, But then these, the processor does one thing at a time. Yeah. So it's actually doing a piece of your web browser yeah. and then a piece of their email and yeah. a piece of the game. And it's interleaving that yeah. very, very fast. And you have to control which memory is for which yeah. and which, who gets the processor yeah. when. And there's another process program yeah. that's called the operating system yeah. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. controlling all of that. Yeah. And it's also there through the operating system that you interface between different programs on uh, cache coherency, uh, this is uh, okay. this mm -hmm. it's All yeah. right. The volatile keyword in C is basically a manual way of telling the compiler slash then transitively yeah. the processor to never cache because I know somebody else yes. will be modifying this at the same time. Yeah. And then you don't need these mechanisms, but as we said, it's yeah. it's it's expensive yeah. because it, it makes things so slow. Yeah. Because even if for a particular execution nobody else modifies things, you still assume it happens and you never cache. Yep. Right. Um, maybe we could go. I think um, what's interesting to go from superscalar to uh, simultaneous multi-threading, because we just touched upon multiple programs, right? Yeah. And we talked about the processor actually a superscalar breaking down the program into just the dependency dependencies. Graph. And yeah. if I have two programs, yeah. Right, there happen just happen to be no dependencies. But why couldn't I execute two programs at the same time if I have com enough compute resources available? Yeah. So um, you're running multiple programs at the same time. Uh, the processor can do piece of one and a piece of the other, but maybe it can do two at the same time. So instead of taking one instruction and breaking that down, it can take two instructions, break that down. So so just from from the from the user's perspective. Multitasking or concurrency means that two programs appear to run at the same time. Yes. But often this, as you said before, this works by the operating system switching between them so quickly you don't yep. notice. Yep. Now we're getting to the place where the processor actually does two things at the same time. Yeah, it's already doing many things at the same time, right? But like now it's for two, one, you, for one yeah. program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now we say, okay, if we can do many things at the same time, why not for two programs? Yeah. The only thing I need extra is actually to do have two instruction streams have two decoders, but the hardware that does all the computation, I can just share that. Yeah. Right? So that's called simultaneous multi-threading, SMT, where you have two, uh, often two, but it could be even more, yeah. uh, programs being executed at the same time on the same hardware. Do they share the cache? They do share the cache. As you just said, there will not be lots of locality between those. No. So you have kind of more or less so, two regions in the cache. Yes. Which form so you're, yeah. So if you do this too much, you're, it's, it's called you're trashing the cache. Mm -hmm. It's basically mean one is destroying the cache content of the other. Right. Yep. So that's a trade-off. That's a trade-off. And which, of course, you can compensate by going for, dip, for bigger caches. And uh, since we have Moore's law, we, our caches also get bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. 
but there is a limit of what you can, how many of you can run at the same time because there are resources they are competing to yeah. uh, against. And one is the cache, <laughs> another is then the amount of registers, another is the amount yeah, yeah. Of, of 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 arithmetic in your yeah. processor. So there yeah. is a limit there. But th so this this SMT processor level multi-threading is not related to multi-threading in in programs, right? Because we have in, in operating systems you have tasks which yep. have memory protection, right? But run in parallel. Yep. And then there is within one process you have multiple multiple parallel executing threads and they share memory, right? That's the distinction. Yep. So but those threads we talk about now, it's processor level threads and the word is unrelated. Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And it's the operating system who controls it. Yeah, well, to a certain extent, it, it determines which ones will be running in yeah. real parallel, and that the processor itself will dynamically, uh, basically, uh, interleave all these op instructions from uh, from yeah. the the two different programs. Okay. And then there is hyperthreading, which basically means we had already noticed that sometimes the processor has to wait because it has to go to memory. Mm -hmm. uh, the cache already. Has, put some delay there, but if you have, go, have to go through the cache to DDR, it has to wait a long time. Mm -hmm. Well, then you can say, okay, this program has to wait for memory, for data to become available from memory. Let's do something else. And then you do another thread yeah. of execution. That's called hyper-threading, where you basically do uh, let that one thread fill the, the stall cycles right. of the other one. Mm -hmm. And that's also done automatically by uh, by the processor. But the, again, the operating system has to uh, uh, provide the, th the threads there uh, and uh, and do the context switching often. Mm -hmm. So there are basically three ways there, right? Either you uh, do it automatically in the processor, mm -hmm. which is a limited amount. Another is when you have to wait, then you do something else. And, and the processor uh, knows when it waits. When it knows when, so it tells the operating system, "Hey, uh, I'm waiting," and then the operating system will ah, uh, mm -hmm. provide something else to do. Okay. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, is you actually are interrupting the process and say, "Oh, this program has been running for some time. Now let's do something else because otherwise the user will see a hiccup right. in one of the programs." Yeah. And you typically do that, say, a uh, hundred times per second or so, that you switch between different programs, mm -hmm. and that's fast enough to give the user the illusion that the programs are running at the mm -hmm. same time okay i also wrote down simd in this context yeah so simd stands for single instruction multiple data also called ah, yeah. factorization yeah so it's one addition or multiple data and in yeah. the beginning we talked about the width of the uh, of the data you make it wider so 64 or even 128 or 256 bits and some people go beyond to say 1024 bits and that's called a vector because it doesn't contain a single uh, value anymore it contains many many values and you do the same thing on that data mm -hmm. and many operations especially in, in in computational programs they are so regular they work on arrays of data and yep. then you can say i'm not going to do element by element of this array i'm going to do a whole line of this array and give it to the processor and do everything in parallel right yeah so the 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 64 and 64 bit computer or processor is Actually, not the width of the word that is processed in in one go, because as you say, you just said it could be even more. But it's the width of the address bus, right? I think that's at least it was. That it has both, right? Okay. So you have uh, the address width, which nowadays is sixty-four. Yeah. Uh, because before it was thirty-two, <laughs> and we ran out of the memory became bigger than what we could address, so we went yeah. to sixty-four. 
but it's also the width of the data path. It is too. Okay. Yeah, and you, 64 is uh, nowadays also often the precision of of data, especially in floating point. Mm-hmm. Uh, although there even is a tendency to go say uh, to 128 bits mm-hmm. precision of of floating point data. Uh, but often, if you since you have the width available anyway, you can very cheaply use it to do SIMD co- uh, operations. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we already talked about uh, branch prediction, which basically relies on statistics collected by the execution or by the processor for a given program to say, likely it's going to go this way, and so I'm already starting the computation if my dependency graph tells me there is no dependency on stuff that I haven't done yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrote down this term speculative execution. Is that the same or related, or how does, what, is, what is that? It's related. Okay. Speculative execution is that you're going to do something that is likely to, to be necessary, but not certain to be necessary. In the case of branch prediction, for instance. So you're assuming that you're going to jump left, then you're actually going to start executing from the left. Mm-hmm. You're not certain that you're going to do uh, going to jump left, so it's speculative. Mm-hmm. right? Then at some point you know for certain that the branch will be taken and that you're going to do the left part, then you just go on. Yep. Otherwise, it was too bad. Then you basically have to yep. uh, to retract your steps and and go to the right, and then typically restart your pipeline. Yep. So that that is Pay a price. expensive. Yep. Um, often branches are small. Mm-hmm. So say let's say I have a very small branch, a left and a right part, and left I load from one memory location, and right I load from yep. another memory location. They're not going to jump at all. Mm-hmm. You don't, you're just going to do both loads. Ah, mm-hmm. yeah. And one is speculative. You don't know which one, but you do just do both. And at some point you find out uh, which part was taken. And you just use the result from that load and you discard the other one. So if you have a program that basically says X equals and then the stupid C question mark operator yep, based instance, on some yep. dependency, you grab yep. something from location A or yep. B, then you load both, you put them somewhere, and then you remember later that when you refer to x now that you know what the branch was the pseudo mini branch which of the values so it's an again overhead of data that you have to keep to know where which data is now the current one I yes mean, there's and overhead because of yeah you've both yeah. but then you have to control data as well yeah and either the compiler can do that mm-hmm. and just then it generates a sequential program and it generates an extra instruction to choose between the left and the right result yeah so so often called the mux instruction so mm-hmm. if A, then you choose B, else you choose C. Yeah. Um, or the hardware can do that by itself. Mm-hmm. And you do that when a branch is small. Mm-hmm. If only one of them is small, you can actually merge them together already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And say the big one can absorb the instructions from the small one. The only thing I need to do is that they don't conflict. Mm-hmm. If one is does a right and the other does also a right, then you have to be very careful. All right, yeah. A few more things that I wrote down. We'll see if they make any sense. Um, register renaming. That's a superscalar thing. Okay. Can you put that so, in context? Yes. So the superscalar, it uh, has uh, these um, instructions, often with a very few registers available in the instruction set. And internally, there are many, many registers. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you break down the, uh, the instructions into their dependencies. And then you have all many more intermediate results uh, than you have logical registers at the, at the at the program level and then this is called register renaming 
uh, that um, you take uh, a register, say the EIX register, uh, but why should I use the physical EIX, EIX register, mm-hmm. register? I have many others. Okay. Let's take one other. So it's basically uh, letting physical registers play different logical registers, which are then assumed yep. in the instruction. Yes. Okay, that yeah, makes sense. So another way of saying that is you take the uh, physical sea of registers and you break it down into several logical groups so you can then do parallel execution where each of them has an EAX. And, yep, you know. so you can many different EAXs. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. Yeah. And yep. yeah, exactly. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. There's also, um, I think you, you mentioned that before, VLIW. Yes. Uh, the explicit parallelism. So it, VLIW stands for very large instruction word. Mm-hmm. That was the thing uh, I've been working on since 2002, or actually before. Uh, in 1995, I moved from domain-specific languages into C compilation for VLIWs because oh. Philips was making it VLIW by that time. Mm-hmm. What DSLs did you do? Um, oh. Just curious. Yeah, yeah. So we were in the 80s, we were in this application domain of uh, high-performance computing. Mm-hmm. So the whole world was going parallel because uh, Japan was going for the, what was it, fourth generation uh, supercomputing or whatever. And it had just taken over the consumer electronics market and the world was afraid it would also take over the computing market. Mm-hmm. So there was this Esprit project 415 to go f- explore many different types of parallelism. Mm-hmm. I was in the object-oriented uh, version, and I worked on the compiler for the pool language, mm-hmm. parallel object-oriented language. Yeah, that was guessable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we decided to do that through compiler generation. Mm-hmm. And we had some nice ideas how to do that with uh, attribute grammars and Mm -hmm. lazy evaluation of attribute Mm -hmm. grammars. So Mm -hmm. we made elegant, Mm -hmm. exploiting lazy evaluation for the grammar attributes of non-terminals. Well, 100 points for the abbreviation. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, And to make the pool compiler. But then later on, because we were then quite flexible in designing languages and making compilers, uh, also other ones, for instance, describing a production line within Philips. Mm -hmm. Cool. Formally, in a formal language, yeah. actually you could simulate the thing before actually building right, it, course, which saves yeah. a lot of, of money. Yeah. Uh, later on, Elegant was thought to be too complex for the average programmer. So it was for within the Philips research, it was okay, but outside it was more more hard. So uh, we changed to front, mm-hmm. uh, fast rendering of uh, uh, fast rendering of non-terminals, I think, mm-hmm. Late, uh, of non-terminals and types. So basically what it does, it describes a data structure together with a syntax for that data structure. Mm-hmm. Such that the generator will then generate, in this case in C, data structures, a parser, a lexer, yeah, yeah. Uh, all kinds of, of visitors of the data structure, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. pretty printers, and right. whole machinery around it. Yeah. So that actually you have the full front end available yeah. uh, together with all kinds of convenience functions. Right, okay. And that tool was used when we moved to the startup Silicon Hive to make many different languages. Mm-hmm. One was to implement the C compiler with, but oh, yeah. also intermediate languages mm-hmm. for the compilers, just so between compiler and scheduler. Yeah. Uh, the machine description language, a hardware description language. So maybe even a dozen languages mm-hmm. were made with that technology. Okay. We probably call this thing a language workbench today. 
Probably, uh, yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry, I just had to ask because yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, my, yeah. My, my, my topic. So back Correct. to VLIW. <laughs> so, uh, VLIW. So um, we talked about superscalar. Yes. And there you the processor does many instructions in parallel after analyzing their dependencies. Yes. In VLIW, the compiler does so. Mm-hmm. So the compiler analyzes which instructions it can put in parallel. Mm-hmm. And it will then offer all these parallel instructions to the processor, which will do them all at once. Okay. So the unraveling of that dependency is in the compiler and not in the processor, making the processor considerably more simple. Yeah. Also considerably less power hungry. As in energy power now. Energy power, yeah. yes, energy power, yes. Uh, so if you want to do high-performance computing, uh, a typical Intel processor easily takes 100 watt or so. Mm-hmm. There's no way you're going to put all that power into a telephone, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Intel has its own version of the uh, x86 uh, processors called the Atom for yep. embedded applications, which take it consumes much less power. Yeah, but also it's less powerful in terms of performance. Yeah, uh, VLIW was designed to bridge that gap, so mm-hmm. that you have the power, say, of a full CPU, but the power consumption, uh, which is much less, yeah. so that you can put it into devices. Yeah. So people might wonder why it takes less total memory uh, power energy. Should probably use energy because power we use for fastness speed. Okay. Anyway, um, by delegating it to the compiler, you could argue why isn't the compiler then consuming this power, right? But yep. the idea is the compiler does it once, puts it into yep. the program instead of the process doing it again and again and again during and, runtime. And the compiler does it once at the place where the program is being designed which is working on some workstations or whatever where it doesn't right? matter yes. where it doesn't matter and then the yeah. result you put in the device yes. where it does matter right yeah. but the binary becomes bigger right because yes, it you becomes have, considerably yeah. bigger yeah. is that a reason why uh, a mobile phone app that prints a question mark on the screen has 25 megabytes i'm joking a little bit but you all we all know no, that no, no, no. it's not so related to that it's that because of the pictures in it and it's yeah. in the pictures in it it's okay. because we right. don't program at the assembly level anymore sure. we use huge frameworks that okay that basically pull in all kinds of, me- so of, of not, libraries not necessarily noticeable that no. size increase also the um, that fila w is uh, typically not available to the user programmer so mm-hmm. you're not to the app programmer say yeah it's more internal yeah And it's used for uh, for very high performance uh, compute, still being okay. low power, as I said. Okay. But uh, you do that by moving the parallelization into the the compiler. Right. And then it typically every so we have an instruction which is wide, and within that instructions are many operations. Mm-hmm. So we distinguish between operations and instructions. Mm-hmm. For a linear processor, say like the 886, is the same the thing. The same thing. Yeah. yeah. But for a Vila W, you have to distinguish them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, then I think the biggest one we made actually could do 60 uh, operations within a single instruction. 60? 60, yep. Okay, wow. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, that brings, it's a bit, the more realistic ones were say about 8 to, to 16 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that brings its own issues, especially in compiler technology because you have to do this unraveling dynamically And as we explained before, 
It is. Wait, 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 wait. What do I mean dynamically? Didn't we just say? Statically, sorry. Statically, Instead of dynamically. So you have less information than in the processor. And you you have to do very deep analysis to actually find that information, if available at all. You kind of have to simulate the possible executions of a program without executing it, it, which uh, for computer scientists here, uh, terms that come into the mind are things like abstract execution, abstract interpretation, things like that. Static analysis. Static analysis. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. So another way of probably well as we all know perhaps i don't know i'm I'm sure we agree um the the question how complex it is to analyze something depends a lot on the language you use to express that thing so i mean some languages make dependencies more obvious than others yes Uh, the extreme case is functional programming where you have basically no data but only well you have no mutable data that may change over time, which kind of an indirect dependency, it's all directly in the, if you will, variables. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is, how important is it that you use a programming language that is kind of suitable to then, you know, analyze it so you can create a VLIW program that has these characteristics? Is there an impact or are the compilers so good that we don't care? There is a a trade-off there. And actually, it's, it's a difficult decision to make. Uh, we decided to go for a mainstream language mm-hmm. uh, just because you have to address a market yeah, yeah. Uh, where you don't want to educate people in your l- learning another language. Yes. That is a big obstacle yeah, I know. <laughs> for a company. So we went for C, and that means that then the programmer has the obligation to help the compiler in a certain okay. extent. Yeah. You can program in a wild way that the <laughs> compiler has no way of finding uh, yeah. out this parallelism or you can program in such a way that you actually expose the parallelism to the yeah. compiler. Yeah. When make, and that then moves basically in the domain of optimization. Yeah. You can start writing a sequential program which is pretty slow and then you're going to expose more and more parallelism to the compiler yeah. and the compiler is able then to take advantage of this extra information and uh, you have yeah. efficient, more efficient implementation. So you have special pragmas that you insert all over the place. Not just pragmas, also programming style, I would say. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, this is where, it, of course, as a DSL person, I have to say that, of course, because now you rely on style and you can't really predict how the style will affect the consequence and if you do pragmas then you don't know if the pragma that you put in the code is kind of consistent with the rest of the program. So that's where maybe uh, DSL that is nice, better. Nice anecdote there. So also I was within Philips I was working on working on the Trimedia compiler the yeah. Trimedia being the VLW of uh, uh, of uh, Philips by that time and we had application programmers that actually would uh, have a program just write it and then put pragmas there yeah in order to tell the compiler that things were independent yeah and they weren't and probably. they they kept on doing adding pragmas yeah. until the program broke <laughs> yeah and then they assumed that all the pragmas they had put in were correct. Yeah. And blamed the compiler. <laughs> and now the compiler was also <laughs> they just tried it, right? It worked. Right. But then we made a new version of the compiler with extra optimizations uh. or whatever. We gave it to them and they started to complain <laughs> that there were bugs in a new compiler. Whereas actually they had put in too many pragmas. Yeah. Uh, some of them just being incorrect. Yeah. 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 Because pragmas, if you will, aren't really part of the language and you don't type check them. Yeah, you tell so the compiler, trust me. Yeah, this I know is, what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing, yes. yeah. And, and the compiler will blindly trust you. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not a good idea. <laughs> and so I, I, I mentioned this because I have this argument all the time, uh, you know, why a DSL might be better. And of course, there's the obstacle of people who have to learn a new language. But if you do C with pragmas and style, they also have to learn something new, but it's not explicit, so it might be harder, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Um, 
So that's that's then VLW. So the VLW has a very simple or even no instruction decoder. So the ones mm-hmm. we made by then had no instruction decoder. All the bits in the instructions were directly used to control the hardware. Mm-hmm. Means that you have many bits, but also that you can execute faster, but also much with much less energy consumption. And that was yeah. the main point for us. Yeah, yeah. Because the controller part of the processor didn't wasn't there, so it didn't use any energy. Yeah, it just disappeared. Can you um so let's take a modern Atom, Intel, whatever, ARM, whatever it is, a typical modern processor. If you would take the micro the program that makes up the microcode. If you would take that and consider it to be a C program or Pascal, whatever, how many lines of code, very roughly, order of magnitude? How how complex is this thing? Um, I I don't have any data there, but I can just look at the complexity, right? What you have to do in a in in doing a superscalar, you basically have to do in hardware what a instruction scheduler in the VLW is doing. Mm-hmm analyzing the program and it probably is a bit more simple because you uh, have the d- d- dynamic data available but it's it's easily thousands if not ten thousands of lines of code mm-hmm. yeah that order of magnitude yeah. yeah yeah so a few more i wrote down out of order execution that sounds to me almost like speculative speculative execution Yes, yes, yes. So um, different phrases for different things, yeah. right? For instance, we started in, in going into the superscalar direction. We called it first registry naming, yeah. which was the initial steps. And then when we went full-blown, it was no longer registry naming because it went beyond that and it was called superscalar. Right. So we have the, all these different names here in computer architecture and some of them are still valid and some have been replaced by other. Yeah. Yeah. But out-of-order execution is basically that you change the order of instructions to make it speculative, but also to actually avoid pipeline bubbles, for instance. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. And, and again, you have to do this analysis of the dependencies because if you reorder something where you then break other things... Yeah, it has to be problem. valid to reorder. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Um, instruction scheduling is probably something similar. You schedule when you run which instruction. <coughs> yeah, but there you also have to, uh, in VLIWs especially, the, the process, the compiler sees all the resources in the processor. So it has to make sure that if it reorders instructions, not only the order is correct, but also these instructions that are executed together, they don't share resources. Right, they are yeah, independent. Yeah. Right? That is also an obligation that a superscalar is doing at runtime in mm-hmm. hardware. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And if you're not able to do that, then, uh, for instance, in, in pipeline process, you get a pipeline bubble. Two instructions need the same resource. Yeah. You have to detect that. In VLIW, uh, the hardware will trust the compiler. Mm-hmm. And does, don't doesn't it doesn't do all these checks? Yeah. It just blindly does what the compiler tells it yeah. to do. Yeah, and the compiler has full obligation there to make sure what it produces is correct. Yeah, and the part that does all the reordering is called the scheduler. Okay. So the last big topic that probably everybody's heard about, of course, is multi-core. Um, yeah, multi-core. Yeah. How, how yeah. does that figure into this picture? Well, you mentioned already that somewhere in the about a decade ago, or maybe a bit less, in 2011 or so, we ran out of megahertzes, mm-hmm. right? The processor uh, went to, say, 3 megahertz, and you could push it a little bit, but it's really it wasn't possible anymore to, to go much beyond that. Um, 
the next step is then Moore's law kept going on, kept going on for uh, area. We could mm-hmm. put more and more still on a process. It didn't get much faster anymore, but we could p- put more there. Yeah. So we make it more complex, and we descri- we discussed all these issues that all the tricks you can play there. Yeah. But at some point, it also stops there. And you can mm-hmm. either make a bigger cache or say, well, I can put one processor on a chip yesterday. I can now put two processors on a chip, right? Let's put two processors there. And then you can share resources, like, say, the cache, for instance, um, and bus interfaces and, and whatever. Um, and then you go to uh, to four and eight, and now we're at 16 or beyond. Uh, so it's just a matter of the next level of utilization of the amount of transistors that you have available. And instead of one computer, you actually have two. We already mentioned that Computers doing multiple applica- multiple programs, multiple apps at the same time. And we used to have one processor that had to timeshare between these different uh, uh, programs. Now we can give one to one process, uh, one processor and another to another. Or, we also mentioned, the program can consist of multiple threads. Say in a web browser, one is updating the display and another is fetching uh, a web page mm. or whatever. Uh, then you can parallelize that. Um, if you have a single processor, you don't really parallelize. Yeah. If you have multiple processors, you can really parallelize yeah. and even have different uh, threads of the same program run on different processors. So all these kind of things we talked about before, superscalar, pipelines, all this stuff, on a multi-core processor, none of these things are shared by the cores. Yes, Correct. Okay. Also means, for instance, Intel produces then a multi-core processor, say uh, eight cores. Yeah. And sometimes after testing a chip, a core is broken. Mm-hmm. You can still sell it as a four-core or a six-core chip. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, uh, you test for maximum frequency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And only the best chips reach the maximum frequency, yeah. but some of them don't reach it. So you, buy, you sell them cheaper yeah. uh, for a lower frequency. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can try actually, it's called overclocking, to make a processor run faster than the spe- frequency for which it has been guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And often that works. For a while. For a while, maybe you sometimes <laughs> you burn the processor and you have <laughs> yeah. to do extra extra cooling maybe. Yeah, yeah. But there are guys that really make a hobby out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So just to get back to this for a moment, multi-core is not multi-complete processor. Right, because otherwise yeah. we'd call it multiprocessor. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So what is shared? We already said that all the computational tricks we talked about are not shared. Yeah. But what is shared, I guess, is the the whole interface to other parts of the computer yes. architecture. Yes. Memory. Yes. I share that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you share cache. You share buses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you share. Yeah. There's additional things on the on the chip, like uh, a clock running on these processors. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, power distribution, there's yeah. all kinds of additional uh, electronic components yeah. on a chip yeah. uh, that you also can share. Right. But so there is then on a on a on a processor chip, there is no um, controller that allocates, if you will, instructions or parts of programs to the cores. That is done by the operating system. That's done by the operating it's system. All yep. external. Yep. Okay. And you can typically see this. So if you have a Windows computer, you can uh, pop up Task Manager sure. and you can actually see graphs 
of your processor utilization. Yes. And if a multi-core, you have multiple graphs there. And some programs you see it only uses one core, but some yeah. more computational intensive programs, they start to use multiple cores. Yeah, that's where this like the end of the free lunch thing came Right where we said we can't just write crappy code and hope that it gets faster the next year because of the bigger megahertz. Now we have to make uh, programs that are structured in a way to exploit the multiple cores, which is yep. harder from a software engineering perspective. Yeah. And yeah. you have to put more work into this. Yeah, so before actually the, the hardware would solve all these problems for you. Yeah. And now we say to the program, sorry, yeah. right? This is the end of the, all the tricks we can do, yeah. or at least next to the tricks we can still do yeah. we will also offer you multiple processors yeah. but you have to exploit them yourself yeah i think the programmers were lucky in some way because uh at the same time turns out that we had m more and more computers which did more and more other stuff we didn't see in other words the processor would be exploited well all its cores even though any particular program wasn't written to be particularly paralyzable mm -hmm. right so we were lucky in that yep. in that sense because yeah, programs got more complex yeah and you, you handle that complexity by writing different threads that each have their own responsibility yeah and it happens to be so that often you can paralyze these threads or whole programs or whole programs yep so i think the only kind of programs that really where the requirement for Parallel programming kind of became really critical to the programmer is things like audio and video processing because yeah, yeah. they're often the computer does nothing else. Yeah, so you see that, for instance, in the SIMD operations that mm. you mentioned, right? So you mentioned you can do 8-bit eight, yeah. operations in 164-word. There are special instructions for that yeah. called the MMX instructions. Right, yeah. You have to use that yourself. Yeah. Uh, but then people started to make libraries, such that if yes. you do want to do vector addition, you can use a library for that, yeah, and, and it so make it that. more easy again. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but in the end, we also moved that to the programmer to to make use of that level of parallelism. Yeah. So so far, we've only talked about well, you mentioned energy and passing a couple of times, but is it fair to say that with all the mobile devices, the, con the energy has become just as an important concern as speed? Even more. Even more. Energy is limiting. It's limiting the the complexity of uh, of what we can do on mobile devices. Mm -hmm. We know how to make these these complex processors and have the, all the performance that we we want, but it's just not the energy available. Mm -hmm. You have a certain envelope in which you have to put everything, and that is display, that is processing, right. that is all the all the radios you have on it on a yeah. uh, on a device. All of that consume power, and somehow you have to to spread that over the different uh, devices that you have there, mm. and that gives a strong power limitation. And you have a few watt available at most. Um, of course, and it depends how 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 efficient you you want to be for smart watches, for instance. Yeah, yeah. It's even less because the batteries are just smaller. Yeah. And as we know, for phones, it's impossible to make the phone a millimeter thicker to put in more battery because a millimeter thicker is impossible by definition. It's by definition. I'm yeah, annoyed by this. This, this, is, but, uh, this is driven by fashion. Yeah. Fashion beats everything. Yes. Yeah. So what can we do to make processors more efficient? We talked about VLIW where we don't have a controller. We do that in the compiler. That's, that's one thing, I guess. That's one thing. What and the other is technology do? on of the chip itself. Mm -hmm. So every transistor takes power. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that is proportional to the size of the transistor to some extent. Mm. That means that if we go along with Moore's law and they get smaller and smaller, they also get more and more efficient. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of free lunch. Mm -hmm. um, not for the 
uh, ISMLs of this world, but Not, for yeah, us. Yeah, for the user. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but it basically means the power consumption of the chip stays the same, but you can just do more with the same power. Right. Um, then the power of uh, that you consume is uh, <laughs> quadratic in the voltage, mm -hmm. the source voltage that you apply to the mm -hmm. chip. So we try to lower the voltage here. Where are we today, roughly? 1.3, 1.1 volt or okay. something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, we used to come from 5, so yeah, yeah, exactly. 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes quadratic, right? So that mm -hmm. counts for almost 20, uh, power consumption of 20 or something like that. Factor of 20. Uh, you have become cheaper. And what's the problem in lowering the voltage? Seems the problem is that the device has to operate, right? So it needs some some level of voltage in order to be able to to switch. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you make that voltage lower and lower and lower, apart from just sw switching, it also starts to leak. Mm -hmm. That means even if it doesn't switch, it, it drains power. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. And um, there are different silicon processes there for, say, high power, uh, high leakage. And... Uh, low power, low leakage. Mm -hmm. The low, low low leakage processes are slower in terms of the, the silicon, the transistors switch slower, so you can't ah, make that fast oh, processors right. anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, they have much less uh, slow, lower leakage, mm -hmm. and those are applied in embedded devices, mm -hmm. whereas the high leakage, high speed processes are used in, say, the the CPUs that we put in uh, in computers or. Nowadays, a lot in in uh, in the cloud uh, yeah. data centers. Yeah, and then there is the tendency to make application-specific processors. Mm -hmm. So the general-purpose ones, like the the Intel CPUs uh, or an ARM processor, um, they cannot be really optimized for specific devices like audio and video. Yeah, because they have to yeah. do everything. Yep. If you start to do that, then uh, actually you can also make them more efficient, but mm -hmm. less generic. Yeah. They become more special. And <laughs> then, But then there's so much compute to do on a chip that you actually make specific processors for uh, specific functions uh -huh. like audio and video or graphics mm -hmm. is another example yeah. to be able to exploit the knowledge that you have on the particular domain that you are doing that computation for. Mm, of course, it only makes sense if you do this often enough. I mean, on a on a phone, for example, you know that audio and video is is a big deal, so it's probably worth wasting general purpose processor space for special purpose hardware, which then does yep. the audio and video with lower power. Yeah, to give you an example, roughly on a on a embedded chip, mm -hmm. there are three main components: that is general purpose CPU, there's graphics, and there's imaging, and they are roughly equally big what's the difference between graphics and imaging imaging is the camera oh, so the uh, okay and if you have seen basically the, the 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 improvement in image quality yes every generation of of mobile phones yeah. uh, that requires quite some silicon to make that improvement mm -hmm. so in the beginning they were not occupying that big amount of a chip size but nowadays it's equal to graphics and the central processor mm -hmm. oh okay Mm -hmm. I imagine that a processor takes less energy if it runs slower. Uh, yes, typically, yes. So Either by cause of the process. Uh, 
uh, there's also something like uh, voltage scaling. Yeah, exactly. Can yeah. you just slow it down if yeah. you don't... Yeah, you, yeah. So you can lower the voltage and then have slow it down, yes, mm-hmm. and then consume less energy. Yeah. Uh, so that means also if the processor is really busy, you crank up the voltage, you accept that you use more energy at that point in time, Yeah. Uh, but you have to do it because the performance is being required. Right. And then when things are uh, less busy, you lower the voltage again and you uh, uh, you uh, consume less power. Right, yeah. So that is basically on a general level for the whole processor. You can also be much more specific and do clock gating. So all the uh, components of a processor, they <coughs> actually uh, respond to a global clock. Yeah. That does tick tock, tick tock, and every clock cycle you do one computation step. Yeah. And that's the clock that we talk about, let's say the three gigahertz clock or yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, but sometimes a part of a chip doesn't have to do anything. If you mm-hmm. keep on clocking it, actually the logic will still flip up and down mm-hmm. between zero and one, and that takes energy. Mm-hmm. It's the actually the change in level that takes the energy. So what you then want to do if you detect that this part is not needed at the moment, say I'm not do using ah. the multiplier, mm-hmm. right? You remove the clock from the multiplier. Mm-hmm. You switch it off. You if just you switch will. it off for yeah. that particular cycle. You can do that per ah. cycle actually. Oh, okay, wow. Mm-hmm. Or even for longer periods of time. And so if you do that, uh, you do this, this fine level or coarse level clock rating. There are different levels there. Um, you can also save power. Mm-hmm. And you can even go one step further and say I'm not going to apply the voltage even to yeah. that uh, particular part of the chip. Remove the voltage. You have to be careful there because then you would lose state. So your registers, if they mm-hmm. contain any value, mm-hmm. that is gone. Mm-hmm. So that's more difficult. But in logic, you can do these kind of things. Mm-hmm. And these tricks are being applied <laughs> as well. So the whole industry is going to a great effort, actually, to uh, to combat the uh, the power consumption. Mm-hmm. At the moment, it's, it's actually a limiting factor uh, of uh, of the technology. So I think it's, I don't know, at least in my circles, this is like a general understanding that ARMs are better there than Intel's processors. I mean, it's well known that Intel isn't doing that great in the in the mobile world. What what do the ARMs do better here or different? So why There's are they? a few reasons there. What is partly perception. So an atom isn't that really that much more power hungry than an, uh, than an ARM. Um, but ARM has the advantage of being more risky than uh, less risky, say. Mm-hmm. Risk with a C there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And therefore, the, the processor control is, is more simple. Yeah, okay. Mm. And, and it doesn't have to advantage. be backward compatible. Well, atoms probably it also aren't. Are uh, atoms are backward compatible. To the Stone Age. Yeah, yeah, yeah to the Stone Age. Oh, yes. okay, I see. Yeah. But the other important aspect is what is called don't wake the giant. <laughs> okay. Um, so suppose there's nothing to do on the device mm-hmm. uh, apart from some control and seeing whether, say, a message comes in or whatever, right? Or keeping your, uh, say, a GPS tracker busy. It's from time to time there is what's called an interrupt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which basically has some device that detects there's some computation that I need the attention of the processor for. Yeah. And maybe it's just updating some data in memory or whatever, small small tasks. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you only have one big processor in a mm-hmm. chip, uh, say the the atom, then you have to wake that up, mm-hmm. right? And then it is woken up completely. It does yeah, one yeah. small thing and it goes back to sleep, yeah, which yeah. is a waste of energy. In the ARM architecture, there are often two processors: the ARM and the thumb. Mm-hmm. The thumb being a small ARM. Mm-hmm. 
And um, it is a much simpler processor. It consumes much less power, and they use it for these small tasks. Okay. So they don't have to wake up the giant yeah. for every small task. Right. This is interesting because here, basically, the there is a direct intersection between, if you will, uh, processor architecture and computer architecture because you now build a diff completely different like world, right? You have not one processor, you have a big one, a small one. You you know when to wake up the small one. They yep. perhaps share certain resources. Yep. Caches, perhaps. I don't know. Yep. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, Intel then tries to have a strategy they call run to hold. Mm -hmm. So they run, do as much as they can do at the, most, at the highest clock speed such that the job is done as quickly as possible and then they turn off the device mm -hmm. or basically the processor yeah. until something has to be done as well, which is more efficient than doing a, some, some computation and then something else and then something else at yeah. a much slower speed. Yeah. So they have a run-to-hold strategy because if you hold, then actually you can uh, power down a considerable part of your, your processor and then consume uh, less yeah. energy. So it's different strategies. There's run to hold, and there's the the big versus little yeah. uh, core. There might also be another reason for the popularity of ARM, which is that uh, if I understand correctly, ARM uh, is is basically intellectual property, and you can yep. license it and build your own custom processors, yep. which is I is, I think harder with Intel because they build the processors, and there's maybe not as much customizability question mark. So there might be that yeah, aspect. But there's also no customizability by other companies than Intel. That's right? what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Arm Limited actually doesn't build chips. Yeah. They design an Arm. Yeah. And they license that to, uh, to others and the yeah. others can modify it yeah. and make their own version of yeah. it. Yeah. And so it's just more flexible if you will. It's more flexible and you are not uh Basically, if you're not Intel, you still have a possibility to get an access to a to a good processor, yeah. right? Yeah. So Apple did that, and yes. Samsung did that, and yes. many others did that, and they yeah. just use the ARM yeah. because it's available. Yeah. And uh, ARM takes away a lot of burden from you when uh, designing this processor. Yeah. And then it happens so that, uh, say. Uh, the iPhone is, is doing that. Uh, Android is using it to a large extent. And that means that there is a large market share for the ARM in that sure, way in yeah. the mobile domain. And when Intel has to go there, Intel went for uh, Android as well, and they made Android available on uh, on on the uh, Intel Atom as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, then there already was a big market. Yeah, and it's yeah. always difficult to enter an existing yeah. market. Yeah. So another concern that came into processors uh, relatively recently is security, right? In yes. the sense that um, you... Well, you should yeah. explain. It has been around for a long time already, of course, but uh, there's different levels of security there, right? Uh, but especially with the uh, the upcoming of all all, all the hacking, yeah. security has become a very important uh, aspect of uh, of chip design yeah. and also of processor design, mm. because often the main ingredients to uh, offer security is uh, also embedded in hardware. But that goes back a long time already. Uh, even in the in the seventies, or maybe even before that, you had what is called virtual memory, mm -hmm. which is there to have different applications in the same or on the same computer don't see each other's memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, memory protection. Between that's memory protection, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And there's an operating system that has access to everything. Yeah. And then there's the applications that only see their own memory space. Yeah. And there's hardware actually to make sure that you your physical memory is split into what's called virtual memory 
and the application only sees virtual memory and never yeah. sees the vis- yeah. physical memory. And, and the mapping a, between them. The mapping between them, and that's called an MMU, yeah. the memory management unit, that basically implements that mapping for you and also implements security. And it guarantees that from one application, you can never intrude any other application. So basically, if you access, if you have a, a, an instruction that uses an address that's out of your range, it interrupts your process and terminates it or whatever it does exactly. Yeah, so there's basically a certain memory that's given to you. Yeah. And if you access out, out of that, that range, then indeed you're terminated. Yeah. 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 So that's the most basic That's the most basic, to be able to separate applications, right? But then there are hackers that that try to use all kinds of of backdoors to still get access uh, to to data of other applications. And they have different tricks there. And some of them actually exploit weaknesses in the processor design. And those are interesting for this this discussion, I think. Like the Spectre bug that we recently had in uh, in the Intel. Not just in Intel, in ARM, by the way, as well. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's a very subtle one. We talked about caches, right? Yeah. So um, we use caches to have faster access to data. Mm-hmm. So if something is in memory, it's slower, and if it's in the cache, it's faster. And that's something you can measure, actually. Yeah. So what you can do is actually um, exploit that to obtain uh, the address of something uh, by actually measuring bit per bit whether uh, something is in the cache or is not in the cache. Just by measuring the time to access. Just by measuring the time. Yeah. Side channel attack, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, another way is to exploit speculative ex- execution in the processor, mm-hmm. which actually, and they, you do it through speculative, ex- speculative execution, uh, also use this mechanism. So even instructions that were not supposed to be executed, but were still executed speculatively, they could influence the timing. Yep. Uh, and that was exploited by in that way actually finding information uh, in your about your memory map yep. and accessing data out of your memory space to get in that, that information which should have been hidden but through timing yep. was still re- available. Not as data yep. but through timing. Yeah, it's kind of a statistical process then you measure how long this takes, how yep. long this other thing does not take and then you... Yep. Pff- with lots of accesses, you you you, find, you, you form a picture. Yep. There is also uh, this, as far as I understand, this address space layout randomization where you yeah, move so, stuff around randomly. Yeah, so so hackers they actually they try to understand the program, try to influence it, and they try to find vulnerabilities in a program. Sometimes you have say data in memory, and you try to uh, which takes a certain size, an array of a certain size. Yep. And what they do is they try to, when there's not enough protection of accessing that array, they try to write beyond the boundaries of that array and then put their data uh, that actually contains instructions. So then that they they inject uh, viruses, for instance, into your code as data and then they jump to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, one technique to to handle that is to have a separate uh, return stack in mm-hmm. a, a, a double stack uh, mechanism so that if you want to return from a function, uh, you check whether there's a real return or a fake return injected by a virus because mm-hmm. then in the other stack there won't be an equal return. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's one way. You can also say what I'm trying to do is actually uh, make it much harder for uh, anybody to analyze the behavior of the program because I load my, my data and my program at random locations in my total memory space. Yeah. 
So you move and it around, basically. You move it around, and every time you execute the program, it's somewhere else. Yeah. And this hacker is trying to analyze this program, and every time it runs, it has to start. O- he has to start over again, yeah. trying to find out where things are. And you really make it much more complex for them. Not yeah. impossible, but just more yeah. complex. Yeah, yeah. But then these guys are writing tools actually to uh, to automate that as well and to make a remapping. So it's always a uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, mat and uh, cat and mouse uh, yeah. game. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we talked a lot about uh, general purpose. Uh, classical CPUs, where you do classical arithmetics and logics in in, in programs. How are uh, graphical processors different? Maybe first of all, in what they have to do, and then how you achieve that in the processor so design. So what they originally were designed for is to do graphics. Yes. So they had to compute, say, the pixels on the screen, especially for things like games. Mm. And you have a lot of parallelism in them because you can compute, say... The left po- corner, left top corner of the image, in parallel to the right bottom corner yeah. of the image. Yes. So all the pi- mo- many many pixels can be computed in parallel. So yeah. these things were designed to do simple computations in a very very power parallel way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in the beginning they were not programmable, but they got more complex. What and does they that mean to not be programmable? I mean, you had, had to program they, internally. They had some microcode, presumably. Yeah, okay. And, but they had just instructions. Mm-hmm. Say, uh, draw this triangle. Right. Um, but later, you were able to program them at the more, de- more detail, and you get access to actually the processors that were in there. And there is now uh, programming environments like CUDA, for instance, where you can actually write programs and run on them. It's less convenient than on the CPU. But for certain application domains, it is very efficient to do it that way. It gets a lot of compute power from it. So what you're saying, traditionally, the if you will, the the interface to the graphics cards was on the was basically tailored to the fact that you're doing graphics. Yes. And so the the the, the API was rectangle, triangle, well, mostly triangle yep. because this is the elementary, and maybe you know color mapping stuff like that. Yep. And now they expose, if you will, a lower level API, yes. so you can do stuff that still requires the parallelism but doesn't deal with graphical primitives. Not necessarily. Yeah. Not the necessarily. graphical primitives are more available as a library. Yeah. Right. Mm. Uh, but you also have availability to the raw processors. Yes. Um, as I said, it's not as convenient as programming a CPU, yeah. but since the reward is can be large, it has been used in many other application domains. For yep. instance, in uh, scientific computing. Sorry, <laughs> Bitcoin mining. <laughs> we come to Bitcoin mining in a moment. <laughs> but uh, scientific computation domains, yeah. for instance, weather forecasting, uh, yeah. these kind of things you can, uh, can do on that. Um, but... As well as Bitcoin mining, indeed. Um, so there was some shortage of NVIDIA chips lately mm-hmm. because for graphics applications because they were used for Bitcoin mining. Yeah. And people were buying uh, loads and loads of these uh, chips to do Bitcoin mining. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, contributing to global warming by now. That too, yes. Because the amount of energy spent in Bitcoin mining is roughly equal to the amount of energy spent by the uh, the country of Ireland. Yeah. So it's really gone out of hand. It has, yes. And it's being used in deep learning. Mm-hmm. So this AI thing where basically the, the Googles and the Facebooks and so on are able to do analysis of speech and of images and of behavior and so on. They use so-called uh, convolutionary neural networks mm-hmm. 
which require also regular computation in the form of matrix multiplications, which are very well suited yeah. to, especially the training, yeah. to do that on, uh, on on GPUs. Yeah, basically what, what the convolutional means is that you break down your overall, if you will, image or whatever it is you analyze into little different parts and analyze them separately, which is like the, the key word for parallelization. Right. Or yeah. parallelizability. Yeah, but what you do is actually you, this convolution actually does correlation between different parts in the image and different properties. So you build a network where you actually correlate one pixel with another pixel and you have different levels in that network and uh, on the output you say, I want to see a cat. This image contains a cat. Sure. And then you feed it 100,000 images selling, telling each one contains a cat and then through learning that means... Uh, adjusting all kind of coefficients in yeah, the network, yeah. you actually tune the thing such that it will statistically determine the cat in the image. So you're saying that the exploitation of the parallelizability is especially during learning and not so much during recognition? It's both, but during learning, it's an orders of magnitude more mm -hmm. uh, compute power that you need than right. during yeah, recognition. Yeah, yeah. And, and also you learn separate examples so they can be naturally parallelized right yes you can also do that so there's an enormous amount of computation there yeah uh, that's by the way also multi-core uh, is very helpful yeah, there yeah. because they're yeah. all independent yeah. so if we go back to all the things we discussed uh how cpus optimize their speed um which of those are or are not used on gpus Like I mean, for example, speculative execution is probably not that relevant because usually you have this whole array of things you have to do in parallel, like single instruction, lots of data, uh, and I don't. There's not that much jumping going on, right? So I mean, they must be much simpler. They are much simpler. Yes, yes, yes. They are much simpler, and therefore you can have many more of them in parallel on a yeah, chip. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yes. So, so all these these big controllers, you don't put them there. Yeah. And uh, we rather put more uh, parallel compute power there yeah. than, than complex controls. You, you could argue that the controller for the GPU is actually the CPU because it tells the GPU what to do and schedule the various parallel executions and stuff like that. Yeah, in a sense, yes. Yeah. Yep. In that sense, the, the GPU is, uh, say, a co-processor to, to, the, to the CPU. Yeah. I recently did an episode on programming quantum computers And there, it's the same story. You need a s traditional computer to populate yep. the, the qubits. You know, then you do the quantum magic, and then yep. you measure, and it's all a normal computer. Yep. So you mentioned in the beginning that you work on this, uh, for lack of a better term, neuro stuff. Yep. Tell us a bit how these things work in terms of processor architecture. Yeah, so um, there what you do is you uh, don't use the traditional adders and multipliers and so on as mm. compute elements. Instead, you use the neurons, which are have a different behavior. They uh, take input, which are spikes. What do you mean spikes? A spike like is... A uh, the, 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 The brain uses uh, electrical signals. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, one neuron is connected to another and it sends a signal from one to the other. And there's mm -hmm. a small spike All right. mm -hmm. where the, the signal rises and then drops again yep. quickly. And that's, uh, the other one actually uh, starts to integrate those spikes. So when it's given a spike, it starts to increase some voltage level. And at some moment, it reaches a threshold and then it will spike as well. Right, okay. So the, what these things do is actually they are quite simple elements but uh, with simple communications but there are lots and lots of them in the brain, about 100 billion or so mm -hmm. neurons. 
and they form a huge networks and uh, the uh, computation is rather sparse there. So lots of them don't do anything most don't, of the time. Most of the time, yeah. Still, it consumes, it's 2% of your body weight and it's 20% of energy consumption mm-hmm. of your body. Mm-hmm. Most people. Most people. But some yeah. people you think <laughs> you that's doubt, not yeah. the case. But okay. You might doubt, yeah. <laughs> um, but still, what it, what we can do, especially in terms of pattern matching and things like, like speech recognition and speech generation and so on, is is way more efficient than what we can do in, uh, in CPUs or GPUs. Mm-hmm. By the way, GPUs also consume a lot of power nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, so we took that as an inspiration to say, okay, let's look at these spiking neural networks and see what kind of computation we can do with it and with what efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to actually bring low power to AI, so you can move it to your devices and not just have it in the cloud. Mm-hmm. So the the computational model and the way you treat it in terms of the roles it plays in applications on how you do learning and also the trade-offs in the sense that it's statistic and there's never really 100% correct, you know, that is still the same. So the, 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 what you do with it is deep learning neural network. Kind well, of actually, in, in our company <coughs> called uh, Gray Meta Labs, okay. uh, there are two processors, both based on neurons, one for learning. Oh, yeah. And the other is actually programmed through a programming language and is used in the first step of the processing. If you look at, for instance, the human visual system, uh, in the visual uh, system in the brain, which is in the back of your head, it's mostly learning, but immediately in the retina and just mm-hmm. behind the retina, it's hardwired. Right. There are certain algorithms there that do right. edge detection, that do right. motion detection, yeah, 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 and yeah. so on. Yeah, many, many AI applications work like this as well. You do some deterministic stuff first, yes. and then you do the learning. What you do is you first basically extract certain basic properties of yeah. your signal, yeah. and then you do learning based on these properties and not on right. the raw signal. Yes. yes. But both use ne- neurons as their computing elements. In the brain. In the brain as well as in what we are doing. Okay. So, so this means that you also try to use this approach for... Um, algorithms which are typically not formulated as here's a bunch of random neurons go learn then do stuff yeah okay that seems to me the bigger challenge it is a challenge actually to find those algorithms and to code them in the right way yes yeah exactly yeah Yeah. but that's why it's in a startup right no no what i mean startup is doing the new risky things sure no no (laughs) of course but what i mean when you say you have these two processors or then my, my feeling is that the that encoding neural networks with your hardware approach is perhaps easier than encoding classical programs this way. So that's what I meant with the bigger yeah, but challenge. We're not targeting classical programs in the sense that you want to do all possible computation. Okay. It's very specific it signal processing okay. that we are targeting. It's more like DSPs then. In it's that more sense. like DSPs, yes. Okay. Yes, but even simpler than that. Mm-hmm. Yep. What's the target reduction in energy you're looking at? We don't know yet. Okay. We are currently working on a concept chips, chip actually to, uh, to, to, to show what we... Uh, what we can achieve, mm-hmm. and next le- next generation will then be some product chip. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's early. We started just this year, okay. so uh, it's t- too early to tell. But you must have some hunch that it's a significant reduction. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. Okay. So where where does this end? How I mean, when will Moore's law? Or I mean, we're currently I think at eleven nanometers, right? 
Okay, so well, there's discussion here. So there's also different companies that actually use the the feature size or the nanometer size as marketing. Yes. So yes. what Intel calls 10 nanometer is what Samsung calls 7 nanometer. Oh, yeah. So in Samsung can say we are already at 7 <laughs> nanometer and Intel is not yet. So there is some okay. word play there. But okay, let's say we are between 10 and 7 nanometer. Mm-hmm. Um ASML, we mentioned, is making, making these machines. Currently, they are targeting 7 nanometers. Yes. And the nothing, true 7 nanometers, the not true the true 7 nanometer, yeah. and nothing beyond that yet. Right. That's the, e- so that's nobody, the EUVs, That's right? the EUV, yeah. 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 So that doesn't use light anymore. It uses yeah. extreme UV, which yes. is even doesn't go through glass anymore. So they're using mirrors and not glass anymore to actually, uh, in, in their optical path, yeah. it's a whole new design. It's yeah. amazing what these, these guys can do. Yeah, these are machines of $100 million. Yeah, yeah. Just one machine. Yeah. So that's where we are at the moment. Um, at laboratory levels, we are going to five nanometers or even two nanometer. Mm-hmm. People, that's really experimental. So at five nanometers, people and in, in laboratories can actually design transistors and show that they work. And mm-hmm. uh, but the problem is in scaling up uh, because of interactions you get because in, of the small. Yeah, but size. also in the fact that basically you have to actually. And you want to make big chips. You have to big chips. You have to project this this mask onto the chip. And if you're in the corners, you may get some ab- yeah. uh, so some uh, aberrations. some aberrations there. And so, and you have to to compensate for all of that. And maybe in your mask layout, or in your positioning of your chip, or in your optical path. And it really becomes extremely complex at this moment. So I think seven is the state of the art, and we're still working on improving that we can definitely there are definitely machines in production that produce seven nanometer at high volumes but uh, we're still tuning it and making sure it becomes uh, more and more efficient and more and more precise uh, going beyond that is at laboratory stage and there is a physical limit mm-hmm, so exactly. a silicon atom is one quarter of a nanometer mm-hmm. right so we're approaching that yes. really yeah. right and then at that level, you don't have normal electronics anymore. You have quantum mechanics. Yeah. And that means that you need a decent amount of silicon atoms before you actually you lose the quantum dynamic properties and go to normal statistical properties uh, yeah. that, that control uh, electronics. Yeah. And we are approaching that. So uh, I would say it, it will still take... We have predicted the end of Moore's Law many times, right? Yeah, yeah. And still we have to be smart enough to uh, to, to extend it. Um, but I think that there are about two nanometers. It's it's really gone and quantum dynamics cannot be no longer be ignored. Yeah. And we move into the domain of quantum computing rather than of electronic computing. Yeah, yeah. And so just when will we be at two nanometers just roughly is it two years 20 years it, not two years of course but no but if you're seven now and then two nanometers so that's a factor of four or so right mm-hmm. it's two generations two generations yeah let's assume that generation slows down from two to three or four years okay so within a decade we should be there okay wow mm-hmm. and that's the only more or less limit is it also an economic question when uh, uh, yeah. one of these machines becomes so expensive and I go nobody can buy uh, them it's also not just the machine it's also, also the fab right if you realize yeah. it's such a fab right yeah. they say there's one floor of actually manipulating the chips and making the chips and then you need three floors or four floors just to handle say the air quality because dust is every sm- the smallest piece of dirt, dust there will ruin your chip sure so um these are very, very complex, not just production lines, but buildings, buildings even. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, and then you have production lines, and in production lines you have extremely complex uh, chips, uh, machines, yeah. and within that you have complex control of those machines. So it's at the at the top of what humans can do at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. To 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 make these chips that you and I have in your yeah, yeah. in your pocket, and we don't even realize what's all behind. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but to make such a plant, such a fab, takes ten to twenty billion dollars, mm-hmm. right? So that has to be actually invested uh, by companies that make the make these chips, and uh, there are lesser and lesser of them. So now we about three of them. China is trying to come there back as well there. So China is investing in the, this technology as well. But say there's currently three or four companies that actually have the money to to make these uh, mm-hmm. these uh, these plants. Is there a fab in Europe? There are fabs in Europe, but not for the latest technology. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think that in Dresden, uh, um, yeah. AMD or Leipzig. In Nijmegen in the Netherlands as well. Ah, okay. So NXP. Right. That will used to be Philips uh, semiconductors. <laughs> uh, but NXP, and it's building chips especially for uh, mobility, mm-hmm. uh, e-cars for instance, mm-hmm. uh, but also NFC chips. So uh, these typically use uh, don't use the latest technology, but older uh, machinery, so less expensive <laughs> fabs. Uh, so these companies are still around. Okay. Yeah. But if you talk about the, the, the edge of Moore's Law, yeah. We're talking about three or four companies that yeah. act- can actually afford yeah. this. So there is a, a certain limitation at if because that also grows exponentially, right? Yeah, yeah. And at some mean some moment in time, it will exceed the uh, the size of the economy on the planet, and that's <laughs> not gonna happen, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's f- limitations there as well. But I think power, and we mentioned that before, is also a very strong yeah. limitation. Yeah. So you're basically retiring just at the right moment when it becomes really complicated and, and you couldn't the, do anything anymore. <laughs> the nice thing about my career is that actually I've seen the whole the whole ride, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been riding all these waves. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. was really the right time. Yeah, it was exactly as I, I was born such that I could actually yeah. enter when the first computer became available yeah. for individuals and from there on ride the yeah. whole wave. Yeah, so it's an interesting time to live in. Yeah. If I now would be born, I had to study a study, and do, choose a study, and do some real work. Yeah, I, I might, for instance, <laughs> go into genetics, for instance, yeah, uh, yeah. some something new that is actually opening up now. Yeah. yeah. What did I forget to ask? <sighs> Good question. We covered a lot of ground, right? <laughs> yes. Well, you could just say it was perfect, and we'll just finish. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so what did you forget to ask? Well, I think we covered a lot, yeah. and there are details, and we can go on for uh, for a long time, and um, you could turn this into a course of processor design, and then it would take several years, maybe even, yeah. if you would uh, teach at that university. So yeah. there's lots and lots of detail, but I think for this uh, this interview, which, uh, I think we, we covered quite a little bit already. Yeah. I think one thing that I will definitely do in the future is um, try to uh, talk with somebody about processor design. Like, how do you manage the complexity in the process of designing something like this? Because I imagine that in itself is an interesting uh, challenge, as you hinted at at the beginning. So yeah, that's certainly yeah, a nice yeah. follow-on. For oh yeah, some, yeah. For These are big the teams that also have to be organized. And one yeah. thing to mention as well is maybe the the TikTok strategy of Intel. Mm-hmm. So I don't, don't never remember which is tick and which is talk, but you have a certain processor design, say yeah. in, in 22 nanometer, and you want to move it to, <coughs> say, 40 nanometer. 
then what you do is you take the same design, you don't mm-hmm. change the design, right. but you move it to another technology. Right. And the next step, you yeah. take the same technology and you a move it to design. another design. You yeah. don't change two things at, at the, the same, same time, time in order to be able to control it right. sufficiently. Mm-hmm. All right, then. Okay. Thank you very much for taking the time and for yeah. explaining all of this. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity well, to explain. Absolutely. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. All right. That's it. Thank you very much, Lex, for uh, being a guest on the show. Very interesting stuff. Um, and maybe at some point I'll do a follow-up episode on how these chips are designed, how you how you decide where all the various thingies go on that wafer. Um, you might have heard that my voice was a little bit scratchy. I, I recorded this interview with Lex in the Netherlands after I gave uh, four days of training. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was happy to to stop speaking at some point. All right. So if you've liked it, uh, please let us know. Give us feedback on the website by rating the episode or by you know reviewing Omega Tau on iTunes and the other various podcast portals. Although iTunes is still by far the most important. We recently registered at um, Spotify, but uh, the listener numbers or the, the listenings, I guess, is what we're getting there as stats, are uh, not really relevant. A thousand per month or something. It's not not a big deal. Um, yeah, again, um, listener meetups, January 14, Vienna, January 28, Kalsoe. Please ping us if you want to come. And don't forget our uh, 52... Uh, pictures, uh, omegathowpodcast.net slash, well, slash nothing, and then <laughs> click on uh, specials and best of pictures. All right. Merry Christmas and talk to you between the years. Ciao. Hello, Markus here for Omega Tau. Omega Tau is an independent and non-commercial podcast produced by Nora Ludwig and me, Markus Fötter. We are on the web at omegataupodcast.net. You can also find us on Facebook, Google+, and Twitter under the handle Omega Tau Podcast. We love to hear from you through a comment on the website, a post via our social network channels, or via an email at feedback at omegataupodcast.net. We also always appreciate recommendations of Omega Tau to your friends directly or through social media. Omega Tau is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivative License 3.0. This means that you can freely share the content, but you cannot use it for commercial purposes and you cannot distribute derivative works. You always have to attribute the source, omegataupodcast.net. Any quotations or citations of our work are perfectly fine, of course. For more details on the license, see creativecommons.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast and talk to you next time. Tell